part of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back. You're still listening to The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. Got a lot of stuff to talk about today. Um, a lot of stuff here. Uh, let's do this Um talk about the south carolina governor man this guy is crazy so i did about like (laughs) i did about like an hour of reading last night at 11 p.m trying to figure out what the hell made him so upset because he mentioned the international longshoremen's association and then the the ila uh responded to his to his attack but neither of them really like in, in either of their statements dug into the um the the kind of the background of why they were fighting right and so i have no context of this it's not been this this fight has not been covered kind of interestingly after reading it it feels like feels like it should be news you know what's going on um but so i i had to do some digging and, and find some articles about this and so apparently what's going on is the ILA has a contract with the U.S. Uh, Marine Carriers Association or whatever some the big the big ocean carriers they got a contract with them, and in the contract it says that the uh, that in any new ports, not existing ports, but in any new ports. All work will be done by the ILA. Um, And so that clause kicked into effect with South Carolina's construction of a new port. The, um, they're they're calling it the, um, the name of the port is the the Leatherman Port. The, the something, something or another, Leatherman Terminal. So uh, that opened after that agreement. So the ILA is saying this clause is in effect. And at other South Carolina ports, there's this hybrid model where South Carolina state employees do some of the work and ILA employee and ILA members do some of the work, right? So uh, there's this hybrid model. And because this is a new port that's been done... Um, you know that that was that was built and opened after this contract, where the USMC said, uh, "Yeah, we will." Uh, USMX said, "Yeah, any new ports, you get all the work." The ILA is trying to enforce the contract, so they sued to enforce the contract in like New Jersey court because I think that's where the USMX is is located, and so they sued in New Jersey to try to uh, enforce the contract for like $300 million or something. 
And then there was a um, a decision, or and then South Carolina countersued. And some some of these facts are I'm kind of I'm still a bit hazy on, but but I'm giving you the gist of what's going on. You'll you'll kind of understand at least the the broad strokes, right? Um, and so then South Carolina countersued, or, or or a lower judge said that no 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 ILA, you can't enforce your contract because of the ban on secondary boycotts. And so I, I'm, I had a difficult time figuring out, like, how are you getting the secondary boycotts? They're suing the people that they have a contract with. How is this a secondary boycott? And so basically their argument is that because the employees in the hybrid work model in the rest of South Carolina's ports are employed by the South Carolina state government, that... Um, that the ILA is then therefore putting pressure on the South Carolina state government who they don't have a contract with and therefore it's a secondary boycott and it falls under the secondary boycott ban of the Taft-Hartley Act. And now I don't buy that. <laughs> I don't buy that. I don't think it makes sense because um, the ILA is not suing South Carolina and they're not saying that South Carolina can or can't hire whoever the hell they want. They're just saying that USMX cannot use a new terminal with this hybrid work model, right? So, you know, South Carolina can do whatever the hell they want and, and employ people or not employ people. But if they do that, then the ILA says that under the terms of their contract, USMX can't use this port, right? And so I don't, you know, and, and so I don't buy that. Neither did the NLRB, and neither did the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Supreme Court has taken this up now, and so we're going to see they've got a hearing scheduled in April. And so we're going to see what the Supreme Court says. Um, I'm very, like, concerned. <laughs> very concerned about it because the Supreme Court is so bad, um, you know, because of Trump, right? Right in large part because of Trump, and I think that's you know kind of relevant uh, to you know conversations that we're going to have in in the later parts of the program. But um, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not hopeful about it. But just the the dynamics in the letter of the law seem clear to me. They're suing the people that they have the contract with because of actions that the people that they have the contract with want to take. Right? I mean, it just seems super direct. And not secondary at all. So I don't, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I'm not a, I'm not a legal expert, but it just doesn't make sense to me. South Carolina's defense or, or, or their, their argument here. But so, okay. So there we go. That's the background. That's the background. Uh, now you're caught up generally and you'll have an understanding for this, these comments by South Carolina Governor McMaster at his state of the state speech last week. Let's play this. Let's talk about unions for a moment. One thing we do not need is more labor unions in South Carolina. We've gotten where we are without them, and we do not need them now. We are a right-to-work state. We have the lowest union membership in the country. We have worked hard and carefully through education, training, and business recruitment to earn our record prosperity, and we will continue to preserve it and enhance it. However, our prosperity and that of generations of South Carolinians to come face a clear and present danger from the big labor unions. 
They have crippled and distorted the progress and prosperity of industries and cities in other states. You are familiar with the Rust Belt. It has taken years, but they've managed to do it. And now their membership is at an all-time low and failing. So now they're looking at us and other booming southeastern states, none of which want or need labor unions. In 2021, the International Longshoremen's Association sued the mar maritime shipping carriers for calling on the Port of Charleston's state-of-the-art Leatherman Terminal. Over the past two and a half years, what started as a secondary boycott to force the state ports authority to cede long-held state jobs to union labor has devolved into a broader threat to our current and future prosperity. The cranes at that terminal and others are run by state employees. They cost over $10 million each and it takes years to learn how to run them. That's why we have our people, our state employees running those cranes. Secondary boycotts are illegal. The ILA's secondary boycott was initially rejected, but later resurrected by President Biden's appointees on the National Labor Relations Board. We have taken the fight all the way to the United States Supreme Court, which I believe will understand the dire implications of this conduct, uphold the law, and rule in our favor. Our aerospace vehicle and tire manufacturers are no longer the sole targets for labor organizers. No, no. Our thriving hospitality and tourism industry along our coast now finds itself a target too. It seems that no business or employee in South Carolina is safe from the disingenuous campaigns and destructive impacts of union infiltration. No one should bargain their prosperity under threats of union boycotts or coercive pressure campaigns. We will not let our state's economy suffer or become collateral damage as labor unions seek to consume new jobs and constrict new dues-paying members. And we will not allow the Biden administration's vigorous pro-union policies to chip away at South Carolina's sovereign interests. We will fight. Ladies and gentlemen, we will fight all the way to the gates of hell and we will win this battle. So there you go. You got a lot of the same anti-union talking points, um, you know, unions bad, uh, whatever. Um, and so the ILA international president did respond. And like I said, he didn't go into some of the uh, some of the background facts of the case, but um, he did make he, he did make some arguments against McMaster. And interestingly, um, he almost, you know, <sighs> I, I I hesitate to say that this is an attack from the right on McMaster because, you know, just because just because the proposal is to have the employees be state employees and so this be like a state enterprise, that doesn't act automatically make it better or or like right wing, right? Um so I, I don't want or 
or or left wing. It doesn't make it left wing automatically. If the proposal is to have state employees do something as opposed to not state employees. Um, but the way that he frames it is kind of right wing, I think. Um, so uh, Harold Daggett, International uh, Longshoremen's Association, ILA, international president, said in his statement, McMaster went out of his way to single out the International Longshoremen's Association, which represents the hardworking men and women in the Port of Charleston. But ironically, the Port of Charleston is the perfect example of this hypocrisy. If he truly cared about the prosperity of South Carolinians, he would modernize the Port of Charleston so that it would be operated by private enterprise like almost everywhere else in the United States. If South Carolina allowed private investment in the port, it would cost state residents nothing. But instead, the governor and his administration tax the public to operate the port. So that's an interesting argument there. Um, you know, I hesitate... I hesitate to say that that's kind of like a right-wing argument because because of the fact that, you know, it's, is it more, you know, what's what's more right-wing or pro-worker? Uh, have state employees who are not officially represented by a union or and probably have lower wages and worse working conditions or have private employees who are represented by a union and, and presumably have higher wages, better working conditions. I guess it's probably the latter, right? If those are the two options that you have, it's probably the latter, but it's an, it's kind of an interesting, you know, using those words uh, to try to attack him on that. I wonder how effective that is in South Carolina. Um, if that, if that it does anything to, you know, Republican politicians and, and commentators and such, I wonder if that does anything hearing that hearing, you know, oh, um, hearing, uh, uh, you know, that, oh, he wants, he, he's not letting private enterprise do the work. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not too sure. Um, so he says, goes on to say, South Carolina's Republican politicians and corporate cronies have consistently worked to prevent the development of a strong labor presence. But since 1869, organized Charleston longshoremen have overcome South Carolina's racist and anti-union sentiment to maintain their presence in the community. From its earliest days, the predominantly black longshoremen's local in Charleston, ILA, Local 1422, has enjoyed relationships with local political business and community leaders. These longshoremen have used solidarity forged by racial discrimination and anti-unionism to combat the hostility created by many South Carolina politicians. Over a hundred years ago, McMaster's political ancestors took the lead in the fight to force black Americans to work for free. Now, McMaster has pledged to fight to the gates of hell to prevent South Carolina workers from being paid fairly for their work. McMaster will lose that fight just as his pre predecessors lost theirs. So we'll see what happened there. Um, in addition to that statement, the local, Local 1422, held a rally after the State of the State address, and they did a big, you know, they had a big, uh, some speeches, and, and, all, and, and, and they had their own local response. And um, I got somebody who was there to send me the video. And unfortunately, it was in like a school gym or something. And they had a PA system, and so the audio from the recording is just almost inaudible because of the echoes, right? You've got because you can actually hear the person speaking, and then like half a second later, the PA system comes through, and it's all echoey, and it's you know it's it's jumbled, and and I couldn't make out very much of it, which is very unfortunate because it looked like they were, it looked like a really good speech and the, re the reaction of the audience made it seem like, 
oh wow, he's really spitting some fire. I just, I have no idea what the hell he's saying, which was a big bummer. Um, but I was able to pull some from when they were singing a little bit that you can make out and does sound good. Uh, so, so let's play this uh, so that people can kind of get a feel for what the environment at this rally was like. So, um, so yeah, best of luck to the ILA and their argument, uh, in the Supreme court. We'll let you know what happens, uh, when the decision comes down, probably come down, I don't know, sometime in June or July. So we'll keep an eye on that and let you know. Um, <clears throat> with that, we've been teasing this for the, for the whole show. Let's go ahead and, and get to the Cornell West interview that Adam did, uh, in person down in Birmingham when, uh, Cornell West was down, uh, for a couple of events and rallies and, and stuff like that. Um, Adam, is there anything that, that, uh, you want to say to, to preview, uh, the, the interview? Well, just that, you know, like a lot of folks, I've been listening to Cornell West for years. I mean, since I was a teenager. So at this point, you know, 15 years, I guess I, I've been following him from, you know, just from TV and radio and and news articles and stuff like that. I've, I've read a little bit of his stuff as well. And, um, you know, whatever you think of Cornell West, I, I think he has always been someone who is interesting and uh, I think he's a master of rhetoric, frankly, in terms of his ability to to just give a rousing speech and, and say interesting things. Um, you know, I was a little starstruck with it being in person, obviously. Um, and so uh, my apologies, you know, if that really comes through in the, the interview. Um, in terms of his presidential campaign, we can talk about this after the interview. But, um, you know, whether you're particularly interested in that or not is maybe a different question from whether or not um, Cornell West is, a, is an interesting person to talk to. And right. so, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I really um, had a great time. It was a great opportunity for the Valley Labor Report and for myself. Uh, and appreciated him, you know, squeezing me in in between multiple interviews. There were a lot of people trying to talk to him while he was in Birmingham. Uh, so, yeah, I appreciate uh, him and his team making some time for – a little grassroots radio show and me walking in with my crappy uh, laptop, my broken laptop and a little webcam. So uh, with that, with all that said, I uh, really enjoyed it. And, and I hope y'all do too. Hey y'all, this is Adam Keller with the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk show. And I'm here in Birmingham to interview a very special guest, someone who has long spoken truth to power, an activist, scholar, author, educator, intellectual, and most recently, candidate for president of the United States. Dr. Cornell West, thanks so much for your time. Brother Adam, it's a blessing for me to be here, and I salute the work that you do, force for good that you are. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, so we are a labor media project. We are dedicated to amplifying the voices of working class people here in the South. 
uh, we're labor union activists ourselves. Our audience is mostly union members and, and allies. So I definitely want to talk to you about uh, organized labor and where we're at in that moment. But before we get there, could you tell us why are you running for president and why should everyday people in the South, like myself, why should we pay attention? Well, one is because I'm already in solidarity with you before the campaign. That's just who I am as a human being. I choose to be in solidarity in terms of raising my voice, in terms of deed, in terms of living, and even in terms of dying for the least of these. And that includes the wretched of the earth, working people all around the world. You see, as a Christian, I'm an international, so I'm concerned about working people everywhere. But I start on my side of town. I start in the United States. I start in my own neighborhood and so forth. But I believe in making strong connections to working people. And that's why I support not just the trade union movement, but especially those elements in the trade union movement that recognize that we've got to be able to come together across racial divides in order to render greedy bosses accountable. So I'm an abolitionist when it comes to poverty. Part of my anti-poverty program is eliminating right-to-work states. I want to make sure workers can organize more easily so they don't have to deal with the influence of the bosses when it comes to those various committees and labor relations connections and networks that make it difficult even for workers to make a choice, right? just to make a choice, you see. So because I believe in the dignity and sanctity of everyone as a Christian and believe in the 25th chapter of Matthew, the least of these means you begin with the prisoners, the orphans, the widows. You begin with the poor. You begin with those folk who have been pushed against the wall. Well, the history of the working class, the history of working people, Alabama, I live in Harlem, New York, <laughs> Middle East, Asia, Europe is what? Make the big profit, extract as much money, and keep the wages low, and divide the workers by whatever means, by race, by gender, by religion, whatever it is. That's one of the way, very ways in which workers are able to reproduce what I understand to be an unjust system. And so wherever I go, I'm saying the same thing. Well, of course, I've been doing that for almost 45 years. You have, you have, and I respect that, and I respect your message of solidarity and interracial people power, well, you have and, and the ability of labor to transcend some of those divisions, because a lot of times there's this false dichotomy that you choose social justice or you choose workers' rights. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. and, and, and we see that in our movement sometimes, and it, it's, it's so frustrating. Uh, but ultimately, the, the message of solidarity you're uplifting is, is really important. And so on, on the subject of labor, labor has been on the decline for decades, right? Since before I was born, the labor movement has been going down. But since this pandemic, it seems like there is this renewed union energy happening in the country. And I'm curious, what do you make of this current moment for organized labor? And then what is your message? as a candidate for organized labor in 2024. But this is a moment of renaissance and awakening among the trade union movement. And it's a beautiful thing. It has one, one of the reasons has to do precisely what you said before in the country, but especially in the South, you see, the legacy of white supremacy has been one in which it's very difficult to bring together white and black workers the way you want. You've always had heroic vanilla brothers and sisters and heroic black brothers and sisters who have come together, but off 
Definitely marginalized, crushed, lied on, misunderstood, misconstrued. Right now, part of the renaissance in the labor movement, I was just with Brother Sean, the Teamsters. Uh, we met and had a long dialogue, and of course, with the UAW during the strike with them twice in Detroit as well as New York with the other Sean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the labor shots. The, the two labor shots. I should really say that. Both of them serious, uh, magnificent leaders. But what what is it when you look at their unions? You see more and more chocolate and vanilla folk working together, bringing power and pressure to bear against those bosses. And see, I don't hate bosses. I hate greed. Mm. That's why Jesus ran out of the money. Ran the money changes out of the temple. Right? He didn't hate. The rich, he hated greed. And that for me is a model. You see, how do you fight against injustice without hating others? And so, even though there's been a relative decline in the last 50 years, we're living in a moment now where the bounce back is strong, public sector and private sector. Right. And it's a beautiful thing to behold. We just have to make it more, more easy for uh, working people to organize. You see, it's so early on, I mean, just the right to organize, Bill. I mean, the Democratic Party is supposed to sign that thing during the Obama years. Never got around to it. Right. He said, well, wait a minute, this is a major promise. Well, okay, we want, I'm not here to bring all my critique to bear on the milquetoast neoliberals in the Democratic Party tied to militarism abroad. They tied to Wall Street. They tied to Silicon Valley. That's tied to the bosses. You say, well, how is it then that organized labor in its mainstream still support Democrats? Well, they say Republicans are worse. They're right. Republicans are worse on that particular issue, namely not being as bad as, Republicans uh, uh, are not as bad, uh, but Democrats are not as bad as Republicans when it comes to some issues for labor. But when it comes to full-fledged support for labor, that's not the Democrats. That's what this campaign is about. This is a full-fledged, full-throttle support for working people and the trade union movement. But I'm still very much against any form of racism and sexism and homophobia because I'm, I, I have a moral stance. This is not just playing politics. You see, you have to have a moral conscience about these things. Right, and and I think what you're you're describing is that we can choose solidarity over bigotry absolutely it's a choice that we can make and in the solidarity powers us to make the changes that we need to see and that is really what we believe on the valley labor report is like we need a mass working class movement oh, we need yes. the people power we haven't seen since the 30s through the 60s and we need that here in the south in particular because as you spoke about Working people have been divided by wealthy, powerful interests here, and they have exploited and oppressed folks in the South for so long. It is a refuge for this anti-union uh, corporate model where we hand over the public treasury, right? And we promise low wages and we promise hostility to unions. We promise no regulations, low taxes. And, and we, as working class people in Alabama, are living in one of the worst places in the developed world. Yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering, it's true. what do you, do you think, what do you think about the potential for that kind of mass working class people power here in the South that could bring that kind of transformation? And 
how do you see that relating to your campaign? Well, one of the things we have to do is to make sure that we intervene collectively, organizationally, and individually to help bring it about. It always looks like it's a David versus Goliath situation, but we have to make sure that we are in motion. We have to make sure we're working with fellow citizens and fellow human beings who are willing to sacrifice in solidarity, but a solidarity, as you said, that has moral content. You see, solidarity is not the same. It's just interest-based coalition. It's not just about interest. You see, I'm concerned about you, not just because of my interest. You're right. a human being. Right. You see, I'm concerned about workers, no matter what color, because I care. I'm concerned. That's solidarity. If it's just a matter of what my interests are, and I calculate my interest is not to care about you, then I go another way. Hey, that's spiritually empty to me. It's just too narrow. But think of this. We know Birmingham itself was founded in 1871 based on what? Bankers, railroad magnets, and steel mills. That's the, we are going to create a labor force that is non-unionized, that pits black and white workers against each other. Civil war is over. There's no Birmingham before the Civil War, right? I mean, so it's a different kind of South. It was industrial. So you see industrial capitalism already at work. And their aim was to what? Make sure profits are high, wages are low, and then fight against even the safety net for social services. Make sure those black and white folk going at each other tooth and nail. You know, 1871, right. brother. To just for you and I just be shaking hands and saying, right, <laughs> you're getting a whole lot of trouble. Now, of course. There's an attempt to bring that back. I mean, that's part of what Trump is all about. Right. That's the fascism that's, that, that we have to deal with. We have to be honest about that, call it for what it is. But I just say that the fact that coming into Birmingham, I can see on the one hand, those magnets, greedy bosses. And on the other hand, there's always been some courageous Ooh. white and black sisters in Birmingham that tell the truth, organize against them, and push out of solidarity because they fight for something that's right and just and moral that makes all the difference in the world. And that's our heritage too. Not just Confederate That's flags, right. That's right. right. That is our heritage too. That that kind of interracial people power that's here exactly in Alabama. Right. That's exactly But Fred Shuttleworth is as American as the Ku Klux Klan and morally and spiritually, he is superior to the Ku Klux Klan, but they both are as American as apple pie. Right, right. Very much so. Eddie Kendricks, too. <laughs> it's the great artist that he is coming out of Birmingham as well. But I just like to bring the culture and the music. Oh, absolutely. Because you know how important that is, and, too. Uh, I, oh, I just yeah. have to say, since we're sitting here, uh, I'm a huge Sly Stone fan. Oh, Everyday people. I was just with Sly's so, daughter. <laughs> daughter three years ago, everyday people. So I, I do love that you bring that in to oh, the message. Oh, you on top of it. You on top of it, uh, Adam. So 10 years ago, you wrote a book that I highly recommend to our listeners, Black Prophetic Fire. And in it, you wrote, quote, that a new wave of young brothers and sisters of all colors see and feel that it is a beautiful thing to be on fire for justice and that there is no greater joy than inspiring and empowering others, especially the least of these, the precious and priceless wretched of the earth. So I'm wondering now if you're seeing that wave of young brothers mm -hmm. and sisters 
on fire for justice. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, I wrote that before Ferguson. I wrote that right after Occupy Movement. I wrote that just prior to the magnificent mobilization result to that public lynching of our dear brother George Floyd Jr. And, uh, you know, on a very deep personal level, you could testify to this as well. As a freedom fighter, you have a joy in struggling for what is right. Mm. And that's different than any of the pleasures that the society has to offer you or myself. That's crucial. People need to know that the struggle's about joy and joy is a fruit of love and compassion and care and concern. American culture is primarily about pleasure. That's why so much of the culture is a joyless quest for insatiable pleasure. You can get every kind of pleasure you want, you still don't have any joy. Mm. You don't have nothing on the inside. When you're struggling with people in the rain, I don't know how much snow you have here, but we had a whole lot of snow in Detroit. In the snow. So, right. That's a joy. You're coming together. That solidarity is empowering you, taking you beyond just the routine of everyday life. There's a human connection there. That's that it's just exactly right. That's unique in that shared struggle builds relationships. And relationships is how we build progress. That's exactly right, though, brother. So, and, and I just, I appreciate your emphasis on, on love. Oh, yeah. And, and the spiritual crisis that we experience in this country and i'm more of a materialist kind of guy and i try to look at things from that that point of view but i can't help but notice the spiritual yearning in this country and, and the despair in this country that people feel across artisan lines and geographic lines and racial lines it just seems like a a widespread despair in this country and with any time organized greed is in the driver's seat it's going to produce exploitation and despair. Institutionalized hatred is in the driver's seat. It's gonna produce despair. And let us never forget the greatest lament ever produced in American culture, John Coltrane's Alabama, mm. responding to the deaths of the four precious girls of 16th Street Baptist Church. And in the trade union movement, you just listen to that music. You feel the love, the care, and concern, and it's spilling over to everybody, but he's zeroing in on those four precious girls. And you say, hmm, that's why we must support the trade union movement at its best. That's why we've got to have solidarity workers. That's why we got to keep these greedy bosses accountable so they don't push us. Fossil fuel can push us off the planet, given the greed. Or these, these the various other uh, uh, industries producing levels of wealth inequality and poverty. Listen to that music in the face of that kind of despair. Oh, care, concern, solidarity. See, that's a beautiful thing. That's where the arts again play a crucial role. So you've spoken a little bit about it, but I, I did want to just say that you have a really bold platform on worker justice and economic justice. What would a pro-worker president look like? What could that look like? I'm I'm just curious kind of what you're... Well, I would, I would make sure that uh, the, the efforts to engage in a wholesale abolition of poverty, mm. abolition of homelessness, a minimum $27 minimum wage. I mentioned before, elimination of right to states. But 
right, the workstage. It would be creative in terms of using all of the tools available for the empowerment of poor and working people. Mm -hmm. We've lived in a society in which the number one priority is not only profits, but of the 1% at the top. Live lives like kings and queens of the past. 62% of our fellow citizens doing what? Living paycheck to paycheck. Millions and millions of our fellow citizens could have one medical catastrophe and become homeless right. because of our market-driven healthcare system rather than free healthcare. Right. Those are the kind of priorities. But the important thing is two, two some my brother Adam. One, vision. Mm. And the other is courage. You have to have follow-through. Most of our politicians, too spineless, man. Right. They're just too spineless. They're either bought off by the powers that be, or they just might as well be, right? Might as well be. In a way, that's probably the best way of putting it. I don't know. There's a certain spinelessness among our political class. It comes in all colors. Now, that's not all of them, but it's too many. Too, too many. many. Absolutely. Too many. Well, I want to give you the opportunity to share some parting thoughts, your final words, and of course, tell us where folks can get plugged in if they they want to learn more, if they want to volunteer. But you know, what what parting words do you have for working class people here in Alabama and across the South? Well, I always viewed uh, Alabama and Mississippi as uh, ground zero for uh, struggle for freedom, and especially struggle for Black freedom, because if you can create a strong freedom movement in Alabama. And of course, that's what Martin Luther King, that's what Stokely Carmichael, that's what James Bevel, that's what Frank Shuttleworth were able to do. And it was multiracial. Mississippi the same way. Well, I'm in Alabama right now. That uh, uh, I would say go cornellwest2024.com, become very much involved, either donations or volunteer. We're coming back to Alabama. We're going to be on the ballot. We're going to follow through with the signatures required to be on the ballot. And we're just coming in the name of truth, justice, and love. It is. I know it sounds very rare for a politician, but I'm not an ordinary politician. I'm a love warrior and a freedom fighter who spills over into politics. That's why I'm here with my dear brother, Adam. I want to salute you, brother, because we're on the same love train. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll keep on riding with you, man. Keep on riding, That's brother. right. Keep That's on right. Riding, man. All right, y'all. You heard it. CornellWest2024.com. Yeah, well, um, I thought it sounded good. I thought it sounded good. You did a good job. I, I enjoyed the the back and forth. I think, you know, like you said, uh, your, your feelings about his campaign for president, uh, you know, your mileage may vary there. But just as a as a rhetorician, as, as somebody who kind of speaks to uh, some of the, uh, you know, the morality of most working people, I think it was a um, I, I think he's really good at that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I, I really do uh, respect his um, his Christian message. And I think it's something that uh, resonates with folks. I mean, I was really blown away, you know, when folks found out I interviewed Cornell and, and met him in person. The diversity of the people who were excited mm -hmm. about that was mm -hmm. really remarkable. I mean, the people at the hotel were excited to see him. 
right? People right. in my life, people that I hadn't heard from in years, people uh, white, black, Hispanic, you know, older, younger, uh, poor, middle class, like conservative mm. even. Um, and so that's interesting to me that he does seem to resonate with folks across, you know, a lot of different lines. Um, people who, you know, are typical Joe Biden voters, but who nonetheless love, you know, hearing Cornell on real time with Bill Maher trying right. to talk sense into those people. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting to me. Um, I, I really appreciate what he does in terms of uplifting a message of solidarity. Um, you know, I don't put a lot of stock into presidential politics. And so part of that is because I live in Alabama, frankly, and because of the nature of the Electoral College, my vote's not going to matter a whole lot, you know, realistically. Um, I do appreciate that there is someone to the left of Joe Biden who is running for president. I think it's important that there be alternative messages out there for folks because, for better or worse, presidential elections is how a lot of people first engage with politics. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it's a lot of people's only engagement with politics. And so if nothing else, if people hear that there is a message out there of peace, that there is an alternative to ethnic cleansing and genocide and, and the war machine, there is an alternative to that. Right. That there are people who believe otherwise, um, that there are people who believe in a mass movement. And that's where our power comes from. Change coming from the bottom up and, and a building a mass working class movement that can bring pressure to bear upon our government. Um, and so, yeah, those are some of my thoughts. Uh, definitely stay tuned to the YouTube channel over the next week. We'll get the full interview up and uh, yeah, uh, I appreciated the opportunity, and um, you know, again, I just encourage folks to yeah keep an open mind, uh, consider different alternatives. How you vote is is up to you, and where you live, and and your own circumstances. I think we've made it pretty clear on this program that um, you know we don't put a ton of our, our energies into presidential politics, right? Um, we vote and we vote strategically and we encourage other people to vote strategically uh, in a way that's going to best help or at least not hurt, you know, working class people. Um, and so, yeah, that's those are some of my thoughts about it. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation um, and I, I really am glad we got to talk a little bit about Alabama's heritage and the heritage mm -hmm. of interracial organizing you know, Alabama has a really proud history and, and it's not just Alabama, it's across the South. We right. have a proud history of white and black folks coming together around our common interest. We have a proud history of, you know, white folks bucking the system, right? And, and joining with civil rights demonstrators. Uh, we have a proud history of folks risking their lives, their jobs, their reputations, to try to transform the South, to bring the South into a better place for everybody. Um, and that's really um, what I'm about. And so, uh, yeah, anytime I get to spread that message, I'm grateful. 
Yeah, and if folks are interested in, in some of that Alabama <clears throat> multiracial organizing history, uh, mark your calendars for February 24th. We're going to be having Daniel Letwin, author of the book that I've been talking about <laughs> on the show for the last few uh, few weeks um, about Alabama's coal miners from 1880 to 1920. Um, he talked about you know the fact that uh, Alabama's coal miners unions have always been interracial, uh, even from, you know, e from 18, you know, 1878, where, you know, you were still kind of in the reconstruction era. So, so politically that it, it was, you know, there was a little bit of an opening there, even into 1901 and 1904 and 1910, like it was never not the Constitution was rewritten by white supremacists to um, disenfranchise black people. The UMWA never kicked out, um, never kicked out black folks from the union, and never barred them from all leadership positions. Uh, and so, I mean, it's a really cool history. And and you know, I, I don't want to romanticize it. I mean, there were some, you know, obviously there were some things that we would find retrograde today, um, but uh, for its time, it was very, very. Um, you know, a, a remarkable project. It really, and and had a militancy and a you know a real focus on growing a movement, mm -hmm. right? And at one point in Walker County, it was the most unionized county in the United States, thanks in large part to the efforts of the UMWA, who had organized even school principals, mm -hmm. and and so that's you know I, yeah, like you said, not to romanticize it because um, obviously the labor movement has its own. Uh, ugly history when it comes to race and gender. And, and so it's not as if um, those issues aren't out there. Uh, but I, I think it's it's necessary that we have a corrective to Southern heritage, right? right. And, and Southern pride. And, and that's so associated <clears throat> with Confederate imagery, with white supremacy, with, you know, reactionary politics. Um, you know, our state motto is literally, we dare defend our rights. Um, and now the, the, the folks who come up with that motto, of course, are referring to their rights to, to do evil. Right. Um, but we dare right. defend our rights to organize as working people. And so we are seeing that happening across the state and they're scared. Yeah. Those ruling elites are scared. That's why we're getting the responses we're getting from Governor Kay Ivey, from the Business Council of Alabama, from other forces like that, uh, because – you know, I think that there is, as we talk about all the time on this show, uh, these last couple of years, we, you know, we've been in, in kind of the center of the storm right here in Alabama. Mm -hmm. We saw uh, things really pop off with the pandemic coming to a close or during the pandemic, even uh, with the Amazon warehouse campaign, with the coal miner strike in Alabama. Uh, we, we've seen the Starbucks campaign hit Birmingham, hit uh, Scottsboro. Um, and so the movement has continued to grow with active organizing campaigns happening across the state. The UAW, I think, has given everyone a shot in the arm. Uh, and, you know, I was just on a call yesterday with with various community and labor leaders and activists um, where we got to hear from uh, a, a worker at the Hyundai plant, actually, uh, Gilbert, that you referenced earlier, mm -hmm. um, as well as UAW organizer. And it was just, yeah, you could you could feel the energy that right. is coming from this, that the more we organize, the more we can organize, right? And and it builds upon itself. And so 
you know, that's my theory of change is that we as working people, when we come together around our common interest, we we build that diverse people power that we can transform things, that we can make things better. Uh, we've done it before in this state and in this country, and we definitely have to do it again. Have we got anybody in the Zoom? We do not. Okay. Just wanted to check. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Really enjoyed that conversation and, and glad you were able to, to go down there and, and talk to Cornell. Um, we are going to have somebody uh, calling in at about noon to talk about Argentina and Millet. And then we are going to have Rick Smith call in at about 12.15 uh, to talk about um, uh, the Teamsters and Trump and all of this. And then we're going to have some time. We're going to go long today. Uh, we're going to have some time for um, for folks to call in and give their thoughts. Uh, won't, you know, won't spend too much time on, on, on the calls, but definitely want to give some folks some time to give their thoughts on, on the, uh, especially Teamsters, to give yeah. their thoughts. And then... Um, I heard some Teamsters may have opinions. I heard some team. Yep, I, I yep. heard that could be happening. <laughs> that that could, teamsters have opinions. Could be the case. Um, and then I want to make sure that we get to this. Um, like I said, we're going to go a little long today, but I want to play this Charlie Kirk clip in conjunction with um, a clip from the UAW's con uh, political convention of Sean Fain because it's really good. Um, it that's going to take about fifteen minutes, and we don't have. 15 minutes before 12. So we're going to do another real short story before we talk to the fellow from Argentina who's going to be calling in. Um, and that is this um, this uh, uh, TikTok about the 40-hour week and how it's bullshit. <laughs> it's terrible. It's terrible. We shouldn't have to work 40 hours in a week. And if we are going to actually, if we're going to do the 40 hour work week, the nine to five thing, then we should actually only work 40 hours in a week because everybody who works a nine to five or, or works 40 hours in a week knows that actually, you know, you're not only losing 40 hours, you're losing um, all of the time that it takes to get ready for work. You're losing all the time that it takes to drive to work. You're losing right. all of the time uh, it takes to eat lunch because most people don't have paid lunches. You're losing all the time that it takes to get home. And then you're losing all of the time that it takes to decompress and not feel like crap. Right. I mean, so uh, the idea that the 40 hour work week is just that. Everybody knows who actually has a job, a real job, knows that that's BS. Um, and yet, you know, people like Matt Walsh try to pretend that, oh, this is a 40 hour work week is so great. And everybody who complains about it is a big fat baby. Um, and so as we're going to going to respond to that. Uh, but let's play the TikTok that Matt Walsh is responding to. Uh, and then we'll give our reaction to the TikTok and then and then we'll see how, what Matt, Matt Walsh has to say. Let's play this. Why is it that I have to work 40 hours a week just so I can have a place to live? 40 hours a week makes me $2,000 a month and my rent is 1660. So I work 40 hours a week so I can have a two bedroom apartment and an extra $300 a month. Like, doesn't cover my phone, internet, food, you know? So not only do I not have any extra money, but 
just working makes me so exhausted that I don't have time either. Like I get off work at 5.30, come home and I'm just so tired. I'm so tired that like anything that I need to do outside of work, I then just push off to like the weekend and I'm like, I'm just too tired to do this after work. I'll wait until Saturday. So then I end up with so much to do on the weekend that ends up having to be split into two days. So I have to do stuff on both Saturday and Sunday. So then I don't get a day off. I don't get a day to relax. I don't get to decompress. So it is really like working seven days a week, constantly. And I, I don't want to do that anymore, right? Like. I don't care how poor and miserable I would have to be, but I literally can't have a place to live without this, you know? Like, I don't know what to do. I'm not, I'm not made for this. I don't have the money, time, or energy to enjoy my life outside of work and I don't know what to do about it anymore, you know? I'm so tired. So there you go. <clears throat> um the I mean that's a I mean that's a really powerful you know statement on our society, right? 40 hours a week for $2,000 a month. That's $24,000 a year. Now, presumably, she's talking about just her net pay there. So maybe, maybe she's, I mean, she's not making any more than 15 bucks an hour. There's no way that you're bringing home that little money and only making, and, and making $15 an hour at gross, right? Um, and so the fact that any, anybody has to work, you know, 40 hours in a week, and you're only able to take home $24,000 in a year, I mean, that is really the fundamental problem. And conservatives are going to, you know, point to, they're going to look at that and they're going to try to nitpick this or that thing. And they'll say, well, you shouldn't have a two bedroom apartment. You should pay less for rent. Uh, you should uh, just make more money. You should get a better paying job. Uh, you should go and get skills. Or, you know, on the really retrograde end, they're going to say, uh, you should marry somebody and get in the kitchen because that's what, uh, you know, that's what you're made for. Actually, you're not meant to, you're not meant to, you know, be a productive member of society or, or to do what you want to do. Uh, you're not meant to go out and, and, you know, work if you want to work or, or make that decision for yourself, you know, because staying at home, if that is your decision is an empowering decision, I think, and is a, and would be a beneficial one for society for either the man or the woman or, you know, in, in homosexual couples, one or the other doing it uh, would be beneficial for society. But, you know, that's not the way that society is set up. But people should have that choice. Right. And she's saying that she doesn't have that choice um, and she doesn't make enough money to have a good life. And to, um, you know, to to be comfortable. Right. I mean, that's not she's not not asking for a lot um, just to be able to have a decent place to live and to, uh, you know, to have some time where she can enjoy her life. And if you work 40 hours a week, quote unquote, 
that really does take away a lot of your time to do anything else. And so a lot of people are feeling demoralized by the way that our society has set up working time. Um, and, you know, I saw somebody say on Twitter that, you know, part of it could be the fact that, you know, in service jobs, we are meant to do on top of the manual labor and the actual productive work that we're doing. We're, we're meant to uh, do this emotional labor on top of that. You know, you can be a grumpy asshole coal miner, right? but you can't be a grumpy asshole grocery store worker. Right. That's just you, that's not part of the job. You've got to put on this cheery facade. And so that takes effort. Right. If you spend eight hours a day pretending that you're happy. That that's labor. That is work. And it's difficult. Right. And so it's going to drain people at the end of the day. Um, and so the obvious response to that should be. Should be. You deserve more. Right? You deserve more. Your life shouldn't be this difficult or this void of meaning and socialization and community and free time you I mean, deserve more you deserve more power to make these decisions over your life and to make those decisions in community with your fellow workers and people in uh th that your neighbors with that should be the answer right that's the answer that, that makes sense. But that's not the answer that conservatives have. The, the answer that conservatives have, which I hope that, you know, they just continue with this. And, it, and it's actually very funny because it's very similar to the arguments that liberals have been making for the past couple of months as people felt, you know, the, the economic indicators uh, were that people were feeling like the economy isn't good. And liberals were just going on about like, oh, you don't understand the numbers. The economy's actually really great. You're just too stupid to understand that, right? <laughs> and um, and so now, you know, people are, some of these TikToks are being made and some of them are going viral and, and getting dunked on by conservatives. And they're doing like the same thing, the same thing. And here's what Matt Walsh had to say on Twitter. Honestly, boggles my mind that so many people think 40 hours of work a week is a lot. That leaves you at least five or six waking hours a day during the week to yourself and two full days on the weekend. How much more free time do you really think you should have? And the idea that, you know, five or six waking hours a day during the week to yourself, that's not actually really my experience. That's not my experience. I don't know what other people have of a 40-hour work week, but I don't, I don't get five or six hours a day where I can just literally do whatever I want. There's other stuff. I have other commitments or my time is being cam cannibalized by work or, um, you know, I have to do work around the house or whatever. Like you don't actually get five or six hours, even that to yourself. But the original demand was eight hours for work, eight hours for rest and eight hours for what you will. Now he's decreasing it to five or six hours. Of course, the reason you see women in these videos so often is that most women don't actually want to work professional careers at all, but they've been pushed this direction by society. But even so, we should be clear that taking care of children will mean working more than 40 hours a week. A lot more. Life is work, no matter how you slice it. Suck it up and deal with it. So there you go. Very inspiring message from conservatives about how your life shouldn't be better. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's wild that, uh, you know, but well, there, there's a reason that the conservative economic um, philosophy is not popular. 
Last I checked, we were Americans, which mm-hmm. was supposed to mean life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yep. Um, doesn't sound like that's happening. Nope. Yep. Uh, have we got Bruno in the Zoom now? We sure do, yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. So, uh, like I said, um, we've got uh, Bruno DeBrusen in the Zoom. He is a union organizer with the transport workers, originally from Argentina, uh, was a rank-and-file member of the Public Employees Union in Argentina, and worked for a decade with the Argentine Workers' Confederation, which was a left-wing labor federation that was created in the 1990s to fight neoliberal reforms. And he's currently with the International Transport Workers' Federation. Bruno, uh, welcome to the program. I appreciate you taking the time. Hey, Jago, good to be here. Big fan of the show. Uh, from far away, you've been listening to it uh, occasionally, so a, a pleasure. That's great. I hadn't, I didn't, I didn't realize that that you were familiar with the show. I reached out to, so I'm subscribed to the newsletter of Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, um, and they do good international stuff. And so they've been keeping me kind of, you know, uh, super broad strokes. I'm familiar with Millet. Uh, he's bad is kind of the gist is, is my understanding. <laughs> and um, and so I, I reached out to them and they put me in touch with Bruno. So it's great to hear that you're familiar with the show, at least a little bit. Um, so c- can you give us some background before we talk about Millet? Can you give us some background on labor and, and organized labor's place in Argentine society um, and, and what it's been like over the you know past several decades? Yeah, so in many ways, I think Argentina is a bit of an exception to um, what we normally think about countries in the global south, where um, there's more informal economy and there's less unionized workers than maybe in Europe. Argentina has historically had very high union density. So Mm. even to this day, it's about uh, 40% of, uh, of workers or formal workers are unionized. That's very, very high, and used to be as high as 60% in the late 1980s. It's a, it's kind of a, one of the legacies of Peronism, which is probably the most misunderstood movement in the history of the Americas, at least, because a lot of people associated with with fascism. But it's really, it's really a left movement that pushed for worker power. So mm-hmm. even even to this day, if you're a rank and file a member or a shop floor steward in any Argentinian factory, you can stop the factory and call for an assembly of workers to have a discussion on any issue and your boss cannot stop you. So it's one of the strongest uh, countries with, with the labor movement that has a long history with ups and downs, like always, but um, it's still to this day, very, very important. Right, right. And and I, I know that I I'm very, very passingly familiar with Peronism. I know that there's been a lot of a lot of uh you know, that that's just generally kind of been the left uh, you know, the the philosophy that most people on the left in Argentina are associated with. And I, I think that if I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with like American history, but if I had to like place Peronism on a politician from American history, I would think like Huey Long. Right? Yeah, that's what there's I was some, thinking. Yeah, there's some like there's some problematic stuff that some people in Peronism have done or say, uh, but there's also some like really cool stuff, and there you know so <laughs> there's a mixed legacy basically we could say. Exactly. Uh, does that does yeah, that kind of track with with, with uh, your understanding? I don't know. Are you familiar with Huey Long? Yeah, so I think that's a that's a good uh, analogy. Maybe it's tough to say because I think the the just the 
the level of how expansive parentism is. Um, just right. it's very difficult to find a working class person that does not at some point affiliate with parentism in Argentina. Mm. They might be critical of certain moments, but overall there's this identitarian connection, which is mm. huge. Uh, but yeah, definitely, I think it's 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 a good uh, it's a good comparison. I hadn't thought about it before, and it's it's an easy answer now when people ask me, because go. often, especially with American crowd, there is this historic affiliation of Peronism with fascism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right? And it's very difficult to explain how. Yes, like Peron was uh, he was a fan of Mussolini, but the movement itself was not a fascist movement. There were even opposition parties. So it's a different kind of uh, animal altogether. But I think that that's a good example to take. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think uh, uh, I, I think with the warts included, I, I think America would be in a better place if like the mainstream <laughs> of the Democratic Party was like, oh, yeah, Huey Longism. Uh, that, I think that yeah. would be certainly a lot different. And even in Alabama, Alabama actually has a politician that, that is, you know, not as good as Huey Long. But but George Wallace, interestingly enough, and this this history is is not really well known. But after the civil rights movement, George Wallace really kind of conceded, and and was in certain areas a champion of you know poor and, and working people. And I actually there was a there was a really just a fascinating interview with him on uh, William Buckley's program where Buckley is like lambasting him as, you know, basically a socialist because whatever. And, and George Wallace is like, you know, and this was in the eighties or something. And George Wallace is like, well, you know, look, if it makes me a socialist that I think that, uh, you know, grandmothers shouldn't be homeless on the street, then, you know, whatever, call me what you like. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he really had a a redemption arc that, that people aren't familiar enough with, um, lots of black folks in his administration. Anyway, I don't want to bore you with the, yeah, you know, uh, there's an interesting thing on Peronism just to add shortly. There's a really good book uh, called ambassadors of the working class during Peronism in the like 1940s, 1940s and 1950s, they created these programs where every embassy, every big embassy will have trade union (laughs) Uh, delegates will be labor attaches basically and their whole purpose of those attaches was actually to support organized workers in those countries so you had embassies all over the world from argentina that had labor attaches that were basically in many cases even shop floor stewards that had three months training and they were sent as labor attaches to the embassies to support local organizing uh, in the countries that they were supposedly being diplomats and so not that so of cool. course it created all kinds of tensions with um, different uh, countries including the soviet union that said get rid of these guys because <laughs> like this is not gonna fly but there are many interesting examples of how these labor attaches played a, an important role in struggles of people especially in central america and other south american countries yeah, that's uh, that's it's awesome. Called Ambassadors yeah. of the Working Class the book. It's an, an English book as an Argentinian historian. Yeah. And who and, and what was the name of the book? The book is called Ambassadors of the Working Class and the author is uh, Ernesto Seman. I can send you the link. He's a, he was a professor at Richmond for for a while. Okay. Um, it's kind of a yeah, like a, anyways, an interesting story to connect. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's, uh, that, that is interesting. I'm going to have to get that book. Uh, I was corrected in the chat. The interview was from 1968 and, um, that, uh, I was forgetting pre-redemption. Yeah. Pre, pre pre-redemption, interestingly enough, but, um, the, uh, um, 
uh, Jim Folsom was another one kind of in the from Alabama in the Huey Long tradition. But uh, getting a little bit sidetracked on the history of problematic, <laughs> problem, problematic politicians. Um, talk to us about uh, Argentina's con- like what's going on. What was going on before this presidential election where this really wacky guy was able to win the election on terms that in America we would call a landslide. I mean, it was like, what, 56-44? I mean, that's that's pretty big. And this is a really fringe kind of guy. What was going on that even made that possible? Yeah, it's. I wish I could explain it in a way that it makes sense, but everybody was shocked. It's one of those processes that I think similar maybe to when Trump started in the U.S. or Bolsonaro in Brazil, that your first reaction is like, there's no way this guy can win. And then you start seeing how they grow and they grow and there is a lot of accumulated frustration. And I think that's what had been happening in Argentina for many years. Just a lot of frustration, a very bad economic situation, um, very high inflation, you know, 100% a year inflation, even higher some years. You, you can imagine that every time you go to the supermarket, you have to buy two or three products if they're on offer because you know they're going to go up in, in price maybe 10, 15% by the next time you go. So that mm. g- creates a lot of frustration. And this guy, basically, he's the uh, Millet is like he's an outsider in many ways, but he's also an outsider that has been used by big capital. So for mm. many years, he was the chief economist of one of the biggest uh, corporations in Argentina. It's called Corporación América, which is runs most of the airports. It's like a massive uh, corporation. And they kind of they started giving him space in their news channels um, because he was very loud and you know very attractive to be on TV because the guy would just basically just go unhinged and mm. for hours about you know how we need more freedom and and, and anarcho libertarian in in all of its senses except when it comes to cultural things and social things mm. so he's anti-abortion which is a huge contradiction um, but anyway so he really channeled that frustration. Um, and I think nobody expected that he would win the second round by that much. Mind you, he did not win the majority in parliament. So in presidential system, mm-hmm. you have that balance. So in right now, he doesn't have a majority in parliament, and it's probably going to be one of the biggest possible roadblocks to his government. But I think just the socioeconomic frustration of eight years of very high inflation, stagnation, um, just led people to be like, you know, Fuck it. Let's go with the crazy wow. guy. It's sounds sounds good. Let let everything explode. I think that was somewhat the the reaction. I would say. Uh, you you mentioned inflation and and that you know it it could be as much as ten to fifteen percent higher the next time you go to the grocery store. What was inflation year over year at its peak? So, um, for example, the year before the election, just to give you an idea, was a hundred and twenty percent over year year over year. Yeah. So even imagine, and, and I say this from the union side, uh, all your collective bargaining becomes a monthly renegotiation with Jeez. your employer to wow. be like, we got to update the terms, we got to update the terms. And you start, you start signing collective bargaining agreements that have monthly updates. And wow. everything else is just like, every every worker is pissed off at the union because they're like, we just lost 10% of our wage. Like, what what the heck are we doing? It's just a constant stress. Um, so I think this guy channeled that stress really well, mm. Millet, and just said, here's my solution. We're going to dollarize the economy and you're going to get 
stability. I think that was more than freedom. It was stability, what he sold right. as the solution. Ironically, you... since he has been in power, inflation has exploded even more because he mm. deregulated everything. And now we have even more instability in the country. Can you, so his, I think his biggest thing was dollarizing the economy. That, that seemed to be the thing that convinced the most people. It, it, if, I'm, if I'm reading the situation correctly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that dollarizing the economy seemed to, seemed to attract a lot of people. Can you explain what that means and why it is probably bad? <laughs> it's terrible. Like You can even look at the countries that have done it. It's not like when you ask anyone, you know, you it's very few countries in the world have dollarized their economy. So mm. for many years, because of this high inflation, a lot of the, especially like the middle class in Argentina, middle and middle upper class, they go to the dollar as the, as the alternative. If you want to save some money, you buy dollars because you know that currency will continue to devalue eventually. So if you want to save some value, you buy dollars. So there's already a big presence of the dollar in the society. Apartments, houses are bought and sold in dollars, for example. Now, dollarizing the whole economy will be politically and economically suicidal, basically. Politically, because you lose any capacity to have your own national policy. And mm. you depend on the US central, uh, like the Federal Reserve, basically. You start, you kind of give in and all of your monetary policy is gone in just that moment. Economically, it's terrible because to do it in Argentina and in any country, you will need to have very high reserves and therefore people's wages will auto, you will have to devalue a lot the currency of what they're at in order to dollarize. Mm -hmm. So people's wages will go from, let's say today the average wage is $500 a month, it will go to less than $100 a month if they were dollarized. Um, so it's it's dangerous in many ways, but because the situation has been so volatile, for many people it sounded like, okay, yeah, give me stability. I want, you know, if I have right. dollars, I'm gonna things are gonna be more stable, even though you will have way less and you'll be able to afford a fourth of what you can afford today in general, mm -hmm. food of everything. But that was that was a pitch. It was so unrealistic that he already withdrew it, the Millet. He's not talking about it anymore. Mm. And, you know, it, it, just to underscore that, you know, you would take away a lot of your na national sovereignty in your monetary program if you're not, you know, the ones printing the currency. And, and you know, just to help folks understand, you know, in America, one of the reasons that, that we are able to fund, you know, some of the things that we are, you know, Medicare and Social Security and, and go into debt to do it, run a deficit is because we control our own currency uh, in, in the United States. The United States controls its own currency. Uh, so it is able to print money when it needs to. Uh, and so uh, think about the idea of outsourcing that ability and uh, to another country without having any democratic say over that country. I mean, it's just a bizarre kind of proposal, it seems. Like, you have no democratic authority. To, yeah. Yeah. Like also no think about which country and what's the role of that country historically in your region. Right, right. So U.S. Yeah. imperialism has a historic role. But you know the joke in Latin America is, why has the U.S. never had a military coup? Because they don't have a U.S. embassy. Um, <laughs> so just to give you an idea, like... With that historic right. role, obviously, that is also that political element that why are we going to concede to the country that in most people's mind has been also 
they're responsible for a lot of the problems, not all of them, but right. a lot of them. So uh, dollarizing the economy, bad. Okay, he's now president, and he has been trying to enact a a really sweeping amount of change. And as an American, um, it's uh, it's kind of mind-boggling to me because the amount of things that he is trying to do and like signing executive orders or whatever they call it in Argentina to do is just so beyond the scope of what we imagine uh, of what our our president at least purports to have the power to do you know like even i mean a, a Donald Trump or or Joe Biden would never uh like or or and have never at least done anything unilaterally as sweeping as Millet is doing in Argentina or is trying to do? What are the things that he's trying to do in Argentina um, and what's the response been? Yeah, so it's basically he's trying to govern by a decree. Um, and it's ironic because for someone that went, got to power with freedom and you know democratic freedoms as an important part of their uh, platform that's obviously a contradiction but it has to do with the fact that he has a very small minority in parliament so he's trying mm. to you know put parliament aside and govern by decree um so what he's trying to do he's trying to deregulate everything he can anything that has some kind of regulation so for example um domestic flights in argentina there's a regulation that says you cannot charge more than a certain amount and you have like a minimum and maximum fares for flights and we have a national airline. He's trying to privatize that airline and deregulate prices, uh, privatizing every every state-owned company. Doesn't matter if it's productive, if it's good, if it works, if it's bad. Um, and mind you, we already privatized a lot of them in the 1990s with a previous neoliberal government. We renationalized them in early 2000s, and now he's trying to privatize them again. Um, mm. So. Those are like just a few things. Labor-wise, it's probably one of the core things that he wants to do is destroy this arrangement by which unions have so much power in Argentina. So he's trying to basically take away most of the rights that people have, labor rights, but also the unions have. The equivalent would be he's trying to bring in right-to-work country countrywide. Right-to-work legislation wow. is probably one of the core things that he's trying to do. Um, and that's why there was also a, the quickest general strike ever called in Argentina happened a week ago, where millions of people mobilized in the streets. And it was a general strike where everything stops for a day. No transport, no nothing. And his response to that, um, because he's freedom loving and, and you know, anti-authoritarian <laughs> was... Um, uh, super supportive of people's right to protest and engage in, in democratic action, right? Yeah, no, of course not, no. <laughs> so this is a guy that uh, he actually probably, his anti-labor positions is one of the strongest things he has. One of his strongest mm. uh, beliefs is that unions are distorting the market, so they mm. shouldn't exist. The thing is that even with, a lot of controversy still unions have a lot of legitimacy with working class argentinians so he's kind of threading um very like he's trying to to not piss off that many people by attacking unions out front 
but you you know from who he named in the Ministry of Labor and all of that that they're trying to destroy as much of that power. So what did he do on the with the general strike? Um, was basically trying to paint everybody that was striking as part of the labor aristocracy. These are mm. the people that have rights and that these are the upper caste in our society that have rights and that don't want to lose it. Um, and we are representing the true, the he calls them Argentinos de Bien, which is like um, noble people, you could say. And the noble working people are with us and the kind of aristocratic folks that don't want to give up their rights are with the unions. That's how he tried to paint it, but it didn't really work. Um, and I think it actually has strengthened the unions that he's taken that approach. Interesting, interesting. And so, uh, you know, there there was a general strike and um, repressive actions from the government to try to stop that. You said that he did not win a majority in parliament. Does the, does the Peronist coalition have a majority in parliament? Nobody has. Yeah, right now, nobody has a majority. So that's a big difference is we have proportional representation, hmm. which means that um, it's kind of difficult to get a full majority for one party. You always have to not work in a coalition, but you need to negotiate every vote. Hmm. Um, so no, they don't have one and neither the parent is. Uh, and right now they're basically trying to negotiate what happens with this omnibus bill that he tried to put forward. Because of the general strike, all of the articles that had to do with labor have been withdrawn from the mm -hmm. omnibus bill because any block that was willing to negotiate with him have said after the general strike, we're not going to touch that. We're, you know, we can negotiate other things, but not on the labor thing. So that was a huge win for unions yeah. uh, that at least they're not going to be for now. I think he's going right. to keep on trying. Um, this is also, I think, something about Millet that I find very different from maybe Trump or Bolsonaro, which are like two other comparisons, is that you know people in your life that could be like Trump or like Bolsonaro, like the right-wing uncle who, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's out there and at the Christmas dinner, you always have fights. Right. Nobody knows a, a guy like Millet in real life. <laughs> it's like a creation of, uh, it's like a cartoonish creation in a way. You know how he he almost has no friends. He has no political relationships with anyone. Um, he spent the last week of the election just denying that he does not have a, re a romantic relationship with his sister. Um, he speaks to his dead dogs, who are his main advisors. And this is like it sounds crazy, but this is <laughs> all documented. Like he doesn't deny it. Um, so what this means politically is that it's someone that is very difficult to even have an idea how you will uh, approach a government like this so right you're not dealing with a rational actor day. not at all yeah not at all so like later we won the day maybe after the general strike in terms of those articles are out of the law but they could come back anytime and um there is absolutely no yeah if i told if you had asked me what's going to happen in four months or in two months i don't know it's totally unpredictable right Okay, well, that was going to be my question. <laughs> what, what, what can we expect to see? But I guess we're just going to have to get you on in two months and tell us what happened. Sure. I think I think for sure we're going to get a lot of resistance. So I think another perhaps big difference is that it is a very mobilized country. People are going to mm -hmm. rally. People strike. Going on strike is very common. We also have very friendly legislation to strike. You can do solidarity strikes. 
you can you don't need to be collective bargaining to go on strike. Um, so I think there will be a lot of conflict, social conflict. Mm. People will will rally occupied, and I think the government will probably react with a lot of police repression. So I think things are gonna get more tense. Um, but again, yes, where is it gonna go? I don't know. I you know What's sometimes the best... I wish there were. Yeah, yeah, what's the best place for uh, an English speaker to read about what's going on in in Argentina? For an English speaker, um, so I think let me think. Um, there's a there's an English newspaper called the Buenos Aires Times uh, mm. that you know, it's a liberal newspaper. It's not liberal in uh, I guess it means different things. Let's say it's like a centuries newspaper, mm. but you know you can you can there. From what I've seen, they're mostly critical of Millet, so you will get a good a good grip of things in there. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the best the best place to to go for English speakers. All right, Bruno, I really appreciate your time. It was great. Yeah, uh, gonna really, have to get you back on. Really enjoyed this. Learned a lot, and just know that uh, a lot of us here are internationalists. We send our love and solidarity to the working class of Argentina, and uh, we are very sorry for the president that you have <laughs> and we wish you all the luck you, you, you need it uh in yeah. fighting this fight thank you guys well i appreciate it and so are we we are international is the way i connected with the show was because i think the there was an organizing drive in was it amazon or mm-hmm. uh right. volkswagen a couple of years ago i can't remember yeah. which one it was no, but... yeah it was amazon and bessemer amazon and you guys did a special quite a few specials on it um uh, um, so, anyways, I, people asked me to do a presentation, so I, I went to your show as a source. Well, fantastic! <laughs> awesome! You found Thank us. you so much. And uh, yeah, all right, guys, care, it's a pleasure brother. to be here. All right, Keep yeah, up the fight. Soon. Take care. That's great. Yeah, we're gonna have to get him back on. He's had to could have talked to him. Could have talked to him even longer, but we got more stuff to get to. We yeah, gotta, gotta I really do more stuff. Really enjoyed him a lot, uh, and it's great to hear the you know, the response from labor being organized, mm-hmm. being able to shut down the country, already getting some concessions from someone who is clearly, like I said, not a rational actor and, you know, right. just a bizarre reactionary. And it's a it's a shame uh, that this person got elected. It is. Uh, but, you know, hopefully if, if workers can continue to organize and unite, they can make the best of it a- until they can get them out of there. So uh, we have uh, we have one more guest uh, today. Uh, really heavy on the guest today, but but I think it's been good. Rick Smith of the Rick Smith Show. Uh, every weeknight, you can find his program at uh, on eight central at uh, Free Speech TV. Uh, you can also find him on the radio on stations across the country. Um, he's a teamster, and he's been doing this for a long time. Rick Smith, uh, welcome to the program. Jacob, Adam, good seeing you guys. Good talking to you. Been meaning to get you on the program for a while uh, because you're doing a you know a very similar thing to us uh, just over in Pennsylvania, and and so uh, you know I figured I, I saw I've seen your uh, you know continued commentary on what's been going on with the Teamsters, and you being a Teamster yourself, I figured that you know you'd be as as good to any as anybody to to ask to come on to talk about it. Um, before we get to that, really, uh, you know, before we get to that, we'll have, we'll have time to talk about it. Just really quick, can you talk to us about how you came to, you know, be doing um, 
what you're doing, being on the radio and, and, and being on TV as a, you know, as a, as a union member, as a teamster. Long story short, 2004, John Kerry blows an election. We end up with George Bush as president again. I take a job transfer to central Pennsylvania, which is the supposed Alabama of Pennsylvania. Mm. Uh, and it's culture shock. You know, my truck driver buddies are all saying, hey, we don't need this stinking union. We'd make more money if 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 we didn't have a union here. And, and just basically regurgitating a lot mm. of what they were hearing uh, in on, on talk radio. So our goal at the time was to add a little balance. Uh, talk about worker issues from a worker's perspective and, you know, hold politicians accountable for the things that they were telling us, but not doing in the halls of power. And, you know, here we are 19 years later, uh, still doing the little program on 50 stations across the country. The free speech TV show, one of the uh, we're a talkers, 100 program, um, you know, couldn't imagine we would have done as well as we've done thus far, but it's all about getting out and just and just talking about everyday working class kitchen table issues. Uh, for me, that's the that's the bottom line. And and do you still work your job or is this now full time? Yes. You're doing this full time. No, no, this is this is a hobby. I, I say all the time I'm on a list of uh, the top 100 talk shows in the country. Ninety ninety five of them hate working people. Uh, but this is this is this is a passion. Uh, we're just three fire breathing do gooders who who want to change our little piece of the world. Well, there you go. That's a, a very, very familiar story to us, but we don't do it daily. So so hats off to you for doing that while working. We all we all have jobs, uh, but we just do this on the weekends. So um, so appreciate your your work on that front. And, and being, you know, top 100 radio programs in the country is no small feat, especially when, you know, the atmosphere is is, you know, it's uh, it's reactionary and it's opposed to everything that we stand for. You know, and it's so. all corporate. I mean, the right. idea is, look, you know, I, I know a lot of these talk show hosts across the country. I, I don't buy that they they believe what they spew. Mm. Uh, it's about the sale. It's about making money. It's about putting money in their pocket. And I'll be honest, I, and I take pride in the fact that we're the least funded program out of those 100 mm. uh, because we this is again this is hobby level kind of stuff for us right. but we're doing it at a level where the industry has noticed that we do a really good job but more importantly look this is about giving working people some bit of a voice and having mm. some bit of power that they don't have currently you know for me being a union member is more than just getting good wages great health care a retirement package so that when i get older i can i can live a little bit it's about empowerment it's about being more than just hey you know i'm doing well financially in my household i'm doing better it's about having empowerment at work it's about being empowered in society and saying hey i want better conditions at work and in the public square for everybody else so look, you know, when when I come out against something that my union has done, it's not that I'm against my union. Look, I've gotten right. tons of email from people around the country are going, what are you going to turn anti-union now? And I'm like, no, <laughs> this is about holding my union accountable. Right. This is what democracy looks like. You guys know this as well as anyone. So for me, coming out and talking about this stuff, in, wherever you are, is important to say, hey, I'm not happy with this decision. I think mm -hmm. it's pretty bad. Yeah, well, you know, and it, you, you mentioned that, and there is a real, um, there's a real strain in the labor movement of, of, um, you know, uh, disinclination for um, critique, right? And and you know, being at, be, doing this and and being in this 
kind of milieu. Uh, I've talked to, you know, I, I don't talk to just a whole lot of generic uh, talk show hosts, but I talk to a lot of, you know, people who have labor programs on radios or who do podcasts and stuff. And, and, and you know, it, it's not an uncommon story that, you know, they will, they'll have an opinion or something and, and then they'll get a bunch of shit from the union, right? Then the, the union will come and, and maybe they'll pull funding from the program if they were funders, or, or maybe they'll try to, uh, you know, you know, try, try to badmouth them in this, this or that, uh, different place and, and try to just kind of break down the show. And it seems to me that, it, 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 and just, it, this is a good segue because it, it seems to me that on the right, there is in the media a much higher tolerance for disagreement and your funding is not going to get pulled if you, you know, if you're a right winger who prefers, uh, who prefers, you know, Nikki Haley to Donald Trump, you're going to, you know, you're going to toe the line eventually, but you can say whatever you want. And as long as you continue generally to, uh, you know, hew to the, the message, then you're still going to have a radio show. Uh, but right. the, you know, it seems like the left and even liberals and the labor movement, that tolerance is just not there. And you can see the, you, you can, you can see the effects of that. 95 of the top 100 talkers in the country are reactionary or at least spew reactionary talking points on the radio. And we have zero presence almost on, on, uh, on the radio and on TV and it's not because the money's not there, right? The money is there. Unions every election cycle spend, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on advertisements. Uh, and that's not even talking about Democrats or people or, or, or folks who, you know, generally should be on our side or liberals or left wingers. And we're just talking about political spending, right? And so the money's <laughs> there, but it doesn't go to fund longstanding uh, media projects for yeah. There's no infrastructure. People. Yeah. No, you're you're spot on. Look, we can spend we can spend weeks of shows on this topic. <laughs> you know, I've got 19 years of, of playing right. this back I mean, and forth. Somebody, and the seriously, there should be with. a the AFL CIO should look at you and say this guy should not be doing should not be working. He should be doing this as a full time job, and then give you the money to do that. And you'll be the you know top five talkers in the country in the next year. I'm you know, gonna make you my like, PR guy. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, seriously, like, how do people not see people with the power for the purse strings? You know, that hold the purse. See folks like you who are uh, who are doing the work and getting the recognition and being successful and be like, let's take them to the ne to the next level. Like, that's just I don't know. It's bonkers to me. Well, no, I say all the time, and you know, it comes down to uh, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. Mm. Um, we we waste a lot of resources chasing dreams and hopes. Uh, you look at someone like Amy McGrath was never going to win in Kentucky. Jamie Harrison was never going to win in South Carolina. But we spent right. you know hundreds of millions of dollars on those races. Uh, the right doesn't do that. You know, they they yeah. know how to herd cats, and they do that by 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 having funding available keep people in line, which is why you're seeing so many people falling in line behind Donald Trump. The moneyed interests know where this is all going and, and what they are going to get out of it. And they're going to get someone who is going to be anti-worker. It's that simple. And this thing with O'Brien and the Teamsters, you know, having this daytime drama as the Teamsters turn, 
you know, going down to Magalago and having the secret rendezvous. And then a couple of days later coming out with a, hey, we're going to give the RNC $45,000. And, oh, hey, we're going to have a big coming out party at the headquarters. While that's all going on, I think this is an excellent opportunity while the Teamsters are platforming Trump and saying, hey, we're thinking about it, to maybe go back and look at just how bad this guy was. I mean, I know we... I know we've got the attention span of Nats sometimes, but his labor record was horrible. Right. I mean, the guy was just on every level bad from the people that he put into, into, into regulatory positions to Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court that made the entire country a no rights at work country for public sector workers to his talk of I want retribution and revenge against government workers and Schedule F coming around. There's so much here to talk about, so much fertile ground that, you know, attacking O'Brien, that's that's a waste of time. The attack should be on, I don't even know why you're talking to him, based on what his record is. Right. And his record is horrible. And what is and, and you know I I know that you've seen the news that that now I don't know if the donation was made or if the GEB approved it, but O'Brien and Zuckerman are recommending a forty five thousand dollar donation to the Republican National Committee, and you know yeah, I mean, well, look, again Trump is such yeah. a good Trump is a good con man. So you have this the secret rendezvous down in Magalago. You got you got them going down. You know I look at the two pictures. You, took, you, you take the picture the Teamsters put out and the Teamster, the picture that Trump put out. Mm -hmm. You got the Teamsters picture that looks like a hostage video. Uh, right. You know, O'Brien's standing there. He's got this look on his face. Like, he doesn't know what's going on. But the Trump one, everyone's got thumbs up. Right. So, like, my thought is, is go, you know, the Trump picture is O'Brien going down there to cheat on his wife. Mm. And then the picture that the Teamsters put out were, uh-oh, I cheated I on my wife. I got <laughs> caught. And now you got the $45,000, yeah. which right. was the con that came out of it. Uh, this is this is a soap opera. And it, it, again, my problem is, is when we get tied into this, we don't talk about just how bad Donald J. Trump was as a president. Right, right. It it, it is um it it is wild to think that that you know we're going to spend forty five thousand dollars give to the RNC and you know like I you know I. I am not opposed to where it makes sense endorsing Republicans, especially on a local no, level. Teachers do it all the time. Right. It, yeah. And so there, there's an argument there. But at the national level, the Republican National Committee, it just does not make sense. But but, you know, even the fact that this is even being talked about, you know, I, I'm on a conservative station is one of the stations that we are on. And so I, I go and do, you know, guest spots once a week on, on one of those shows and. You know, they seem to think or, or they at least pretend to have the idea that um, that that unions are just for no reason at all um, tied to the Democratic Party. And it's not for no reason. See, right it's because there. See, right there. This is right. You, if, I could, if I could just jump in here yeah. and, and I don't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. What you are doing is the most important part of all of this, because the fight is not in the in the church. The fight is not sitting in with the person next to you in the pew, not read out of the same hymnal. The fight is all those people on the right, all those people who have been trained by 40 years of right-wing talk radio dominance, by those folks who have been brainwashed by cable news and all of this anti-worker, anti-union propaganda that corporate America has just jammed down our throats. You're doing the right work. You're going where the fight has to be, and you're talking to the people who have to be talked to. I, I applaud you, man. Good stuff.
Well, I, I appreciate it. I try. I hope it's not in vain. And uh, but the you know one of the things that they they just pretend to think that it's for no reason that unions are allied with the Democratic Party and stuff like this really puts the lie to that because there are so many union leaders that would love to be able to play footsie with the Republicans more often, but they can't because the Republicans want to destroy us. Like that, if they, if, if more people even half pretended a little bit to just not want to destroy organized labor, there would be yep. a million of these meetings all over. No, no, you're absolutely place. right. Look, you know, we, we run the hashtag, uh, hashtag Republicans hate working people. You know, look at what they do. All you have right. to do is look at what they do. And I've been on the air now 19 years. I keep asking, find me a piece of legislation that a Republican legislator has come forth with, that a Republican legislature has passed, and, and a Republican governor, president, anyone has signed into law that solely benefits working people. That's going to make my my buddy to my right and my buddy to my left going to make their lives better, going to put more food on their kitchen table, keep a roof over their head. And in 19 years, no one has come forth with that wonderful piece of legislation. And I want them to more than anything. But what we do get from Republicans are massive tax cuts for the very wealthy. And the only thing the Trump people were able to do is, well, that Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, you may remember some of that were 83% of the benefit went to the top 1%. Remember that? Right. And that anything that you or I would have gotten is already sunsetted? Uh, yeah, let's talk about what's real, not what's what's the narrative is and what the pretend world is. What's real is working people have been screwed and suffering for a long time. And it's about time, time we got somebody in the White House who actually understands that, which is why I'm a big supporter of Joe Biden. So the, you know, there have been a few different reasons that people are kind of speculating about about why this is happening um and there's been a lot of pushback you know the it, it, it is it just that o'brien is just like actually like a republican who thinks that workers should have more money is that it does he is he trying to play to the you know the not insignificant portion of of teamsters members who are republicans or is uh, you know is he just feeling like he sees the way the winds are blowing he doesn't think that biden is going to have a shot at all and so he doesn't want to throw good money after bad and he wants to try to make as nice with trump as he can since he thinks that trump is going to be the president eventually what do you have any insight into what the thinking is here i was told at the beginning by some of the folks that i i know that I, that feed me information that this was kind of a last second that the the trip down to Magalago was just kind of a hey uh, spur of the moment kind of thing wasn't an awful lot of political thought put into it um but there is the 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 idea that they're just crossing the the T's and dotting the I's mm. and that's been the the face of what O'Brien's been saying and and look there's something to be said for a candidate just not Donald Trump given how bad he has been and I think John Palmer uh, one of the international mm -hmm. VPs in his letter masterfully laid out why yeah. our own Teamsters Constitution says that meeting should have never happened. But you know, go down to the rest of, of what Palmer had to say. You know, the fact that he, as president, was just horrible in mm -hmm. every way, shape, and form for working people in this country. Why you would platform him is beyond me, given what we know that he did and what he said he's going to do. And I don't know if you've been watching the war between uh, Trump and Sean Fain over at the UAW that seems to be mm -hmm. ramping up. Let me give President O'Brien a little a glimpse into his future. 
That's going to be you if you endorse Joe Biden. <laughs> That's coming. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, it, it, you know, and it, it's going to I mean, this is going to, you know, if 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 they endorse Trump, this is going to be Patco all over again. You know, they're going to feel like, oh, I endorse Trump. He's going to give me a pass and they're going to try to strike the rails or the at UPS. And Trump is going to really lay the hammer down. I mean, it, it, it's it's yeah, see, um, I can't, I can't, I'm not going to go with that because, you know, I understood why the Teamsters in 1980 endorsed Reagan. I got it. I, I, you, you can make an argument for that. Carter signed trucking deregulation, right. which destroyed the, the trucking industry. Uh, completely get that. We're talking about a known entity, a known right. entity who was horrible to working people, and you're platforming them again. This would be like going, the Teamsters endorsing Reagan in 84. Right. right. Uh, this would be that kind of a moment. Uh, I got well, 80, 84, not so right. much. Um, the... Uh, uh... You know, the um, there's been some backlash and you mentioned Palmer's letter um, and, and the it, it just seems like the more that this is like the second or third meeting that they've had. And the more that this stuff comes out, the less and less, uh, you know, legs you have to stand on, it, it seems like, you know, because the first meeting you could say I'm dotting my T's and crossing my I's. And, and it would have even been, it seems to me, a good like propaganda value if it had been public. Right. If you had televised this and it was a big forum filled with Teamsters members, you know, I mean, there could really be some educational value there potentially. But all sure. of this in secret and all it, it just doesn't make sense to me. But there's been a lot of backlash. And on Twitter, Evan Sutton made a really good point that probably 90 percent of the people who donate to drive are left of center, are liberals or, or left wingers. And uh, if. They make this $45,000 contribution or if they endorse Trump, that's going to be very detrimental to the ability for the Teamsters to fundraise in the future. Yeah, and here's, for- here's a problem I have with this. And, and you know, you, you as a union leader understand this. Um, I, I'm not advocating for that. Uh, I've had people email me, go, well, I'm going to stop paying my dues and I'm going to not do this. And I'm gonna, mm-hmm. that's not how this works. Um, what, how this works is we do what we're doing here. We express our anger, our outrage, and we, we, we tell our leadership what it is we want. We don't take our ball and go home. We stand and we mm-hmm. fight. Uh, this, we've gotten too, got into this world of silos too, too, too soon and too long. Uh, mm-hmm. you stay in there and you fight. And oh, by the way, once you stop paying your dues, you don't get to vote. So you, if you want to throw the bum out, you don't get to do that. Right. So for me, I say you stay in, you make your voice heard. You know, down far down the line, you know, maybe you think of, but way down the line. This is way too soon for that. Uh, At least that's my thought. Well, no, I mean, well, in in, in his defense, he wasn't talking about not paying dues. He was talking about not contributing to the pack, right? And so that 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 seems to me to be a little bit different. But do you think that any of this pressure is is being felt in in DC? It's being felt. Okay, I think it is being felt. Look, um, you know, the reality is is they're going to go back out to their membership and their membership is going to tell them. Mm. And uh, they're politicians like anyone else. Uh, a couple of years are going to have to stand for re-election. And they had a really big win coming out of UPS. They did a really great job. I, you know, look, I voted for Sean O'Brien. I voted for these guys to, to come in and, and be the militant leaders that they are. Um, sometimes they stumble. Sometimes they make a mistake. This is a pretty big one. Uh, you mm. know, I'm, I'm not going not gonna to sugarcoat this. I am not thrilled with platforming Donald Trump on any level, but I think you learn. I think he's going to get some blowback. 
And I think ultimately they're they're going to do the right thing. Uh, but for me, looking at it from a political stance, I think this is a this could be a positive in in doing this. And and, and I think I said it earlier. This could be a moment where we have an opportunity as a movement, now that there's all this attention on Trump courting labor, to go, mm-hmm. okay, Donald, you know, what did you do? What was your record? To me, yeah. that's the big part of it. Yeah, justify your IMSHA nomination, your IMSHA nominee that killed the silica dust regulation uh, that, and who is now you know, undoubtedly directly responsible for the deaths of at least dozens of coal miners. Right. Oh yeah, Justify. we can spend all, we can spend yeah, all day all bringing day. up names. Right. I mean, and, and and so yeah, like I said, I think that would be there would be a lot of educational value to a forum like that if you publicize it and you get done. You yeah. just read off everything. Say like, okay, you did this. Why should a union member trust you? Okay, you did this. Why should he? You know, that would be great. But all this secret stuff is just it doesn't make sense to me. You know, my um, favorite one was Cheryl Stanton. Yeah, I know nobody knows who remembers who Cheryl Stanton was, but that's who they put in charge of the Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division. Mm. Uh, they their job is to make sure that you don't get your paycheck stolen from you. They right. they go after wage theft. Only she was guilty of wage theft. <laughs> That's crap. I mean, talk about putting foxes in charge of the hen house. I mean, good grief. It's just, it's amazing how brazen they are with it. But, um, uh, but, but Rick, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. I've enjoyed it. Um, going to have to get you back on, uh, sometime and, and keep up the good work. I appreciate having you out on the airwaves and, um, and yeah, talk to you soon. Jacob, Adam, appreciate it guys. Yep. Thanks brother. Solidarity brothers. Solidarity. Uh, our lines are open, 844-899-TVLR, 844-899-8857 if you want to call in. We've got a caller on the line already from a 510 area code. Let's go ahead and bring them into uh, on the air and see what they've got to say. Uh, 510 area code, uh, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, y'all. Uh, solidarity from Oakland, California. My name's Kat, and I work at UPS. I'm a part-timer and a shop steward in Teamsters Local 70 at the airport here. Kat from California. Uh, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Yeah, um, just following up from the conversation that just transpired, um, I mean, I think uh, it's pretty clear that Trump is a celebrity billionaire who um, has every interest to attack the economic and political gains um, that workers have made through struggle for decades and centuries in this country. I think we can be objective about that. At the same time, you know, like um, a lot of my part-time coworkers at the airport, I asked them about this stuff and they say, oh, well, um, the economy has gotten worse under Biden and like Trump gave us Mm. those stimulus checks. And uh, so maybe I'll try voting for Trump again. Mm. Um, At our local union hall, when we were talking about O'Brien meeting with Trump, um, a lot of the people who are active enough to show up to the local meetings were kind of taken in by this argument of like, oh, well, Maybe Trump is going to be president, so we just have to play our cards right and make sure that Sean O'Brien has a seat at the table. And um, I know that also there's other parts of the country where uh, a lot of workers are more actively in support of Trump. Um, Mm -hmm. 
in larger numbers. And I think the, the brother who was just on correctly identified that that's because there's a lot of lies out there um, in the mainstream media that uh, cause people to, to think that Trump is going to be better when he's not. But right. it, overall, it speaks to the real need for actual political leadership. And if Sean mm. O'Brien is going to these meetings under the pretext that actually the only way that um, we can make gains as workers is to play our cards right and to cozy up to these leaders, whoever's going to be the next president, that is misleadership. That is mm. misleading the people. And um, I... I don't think that uh, there's like no possible other futures that we can put on the table in front of people. Like I really agree with what Tobias said in the chat that we need uh, like a, a unions to form a national political party. I think we could even go beyond that. Like I think um, that there's a need for us who are militants in the union to start organizing around building a labor party in this country. And I think that putting forward like that kind of um, possibility in front of people that we don't have to just keep ping-ponging uh, back and forth between these two parties that are controlled by the ruling class and are never going to act in our long-term or often even our short-term interests is like the only way forward. I, I, I think that um, we can do better than that and that people will get behind it if there's an organized group of leaders, especially from the grassroots, working people who are involved in their unions, who mm. can strategize amongst ourselves, put forward a compelling program and show up to fight for it. Like, um, I, I, I don't think we should see that as like pie in the sky. And if Sean O'Brien isn't there to take the lead on that kind of thing, then we can do it ourselves, but, you know, he's in a position of power to where um, if he, you know, spoke up and said, hey, Trump's going to be president and that's not going to be in our, our best interest and we need to take a stand and, like, not just donate money to, hit, to like, the RNC, people would listen to him, you know, but he, right. he chose not to, not to use that platform, and I think that speaks volumes, honestly, so... I yeah, um, I, I that's what I got to say. Thank you so much for calling yeah. in. And um, yeah, I definitely have some response there for you, Jacob. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. I, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. And I think that, you know, I mean, really, the, you know, the labor Sean's, I think, are, are kind of distinguishing themselves. And I think that Sean Fain is really um, proving to be a much more kind of politically coherent leader um, when it comes to these issues. And, and you know, I, I uh, you know the the most recent thing you know pe some people have a problem with the with the Biden endorsement but you know I, I I still think that even given that and even if you consider that a detriment I, I think that you know Fain has just been a better educator on these issues and but but you know the issue is that you know both of them have built the you know, have kind of built the clout for them to be able to make this argument, right, by leading these two, you know, very successful contract campaigns that saw gains for, you know, hundreds of thousands of workers across the country, right? These two people are uniquely capable of speaking to working people and educating them about, uh, you know, the issues that affect them and how they can uh, make change. And, 
you know, I think Sean Fain has has just done a really great job. You know, there have been he has veered into politics. And I think that by and large, everything that he's saying factually is true. And so the conclusion that you draw maybe is different, but but he's saying true things. But then in addition to that, he's not emphasizing the politics, right? He's emphasizing and he's constantly reminding people that you're going to make your life better by organizing on the shop floor and through, you know, through your union, right? You're not going to, by and large, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to get a savior at the ballot box, right? Uh, and, And so we need to build our power. And that's been his emphasis, you know, that's, I mean, he's really doing kind of the, the Chomsky, uh, a political thing, right? Chomsky says, you know, look, whatever. Uh, it's once every four years, you vote for a Democrat, and then you go and do other stuff. I mean, that's what Sean Fain is doing. And and he's really, you know, I think he's educating a lot of people while he's doing it. And, and, and it does seem to me that Sean, Sean O'Brien is, is um, you know, kind of abdicating uh, some amount of, of, you know, ability to lead there. Adam? Yeah, I wanted to kind of talk, touch on that because I, I do think that these conversations about uh, an independent labor party are important. Uh, we've had some efforts before. We've covered some of those efforts on the show, actually. If you want to go back to our archives and check that out, Mark Dudzik was involved in the labor party in the 90s. Uh, Chris Townsend, uh, we, we speak to on a regular basis. In fact, Chris just posted something yesterday that is totally relevant to this conversation. I'm just going to going to borrow from this. He said, labor's political action is as failed as ever. Low octane labor leaders soaking up Biden's delusional pr- pronouncements and getting a photo op for unlimited funding of the Dems. Trump sy- systematically moving among the conservative and opportunist union bigs looking to make deals. Nobody wants to talk about the sad fact that Trump polls incredibly high among many union members, sometimes majority support. Do the union leaders confront this head on by running mass campaigns of trade union and political education among the union membership? Of course not. If these facts bother you, please don't spend too much time looking at the unorganized 90 percent of the workforce. Hold your union leaders to account. Confront them, expose their inaction, support their opponents who do want to run, who do want to do something about this. Run against them yourself. We are careening into a calamity. Remember that they make huge salaries with lush benefits and too good to be true retirement benefits. You don't have any of that. Your behind is on the line here, not theirs. Uh, and so, you know, Chris has some harsh words, obviously, there. Um, I think he's speaking to something our caller just mentioned, which is you go to the shop floor and you're going to run into Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a dynamic we have to deal with. It's a problem we have to deal with because – as our caller pointed out, as all of us have pointed out today, objectively, Trump is worse for working people. He is a bad choice for working people, right? He has nothing positive to offer working people. That's just reality. Um, we have to educate folks on that. And the fact that there are workers who are following Trump is an indictment on us and our failure to organize working people. Uh, and I believe we have to build a working class mass movement, the scale of which we haven't seen since really the 1930s, um, but not in a way that is totally – we have to have independent political power, right? If we strategically are voting for Joe Biden in swing states in 2024 because it keeps Trump out of office, you know, so be it. That would be my idea. If I lived in a swing state, I would certainly do that. Uh, I don't. 
and therefore I'm free to vote my conscience and know that my vote will matter for diddly squat. Um, however, I think having the independent political power, having a movement that is strong enough to influence politicians of both parties uh, and to extract <clears throat> concessions from politicians, right? It's easy to romanticize the New Deal Democrats of the 30s, um, but you know, we didn't get the New Deal because FDR was a nice guy uh, and, and just thought a lot of us. Right. We had power. We had mass movement, people power that was able to win for working people. That's what we need. Uh, and I do think having, you know, that independent political power is important. There were a lot of third party efforts in the 30s, even during this uh, period of, uh, you know, dominance with the New Deal Democrats. There's always there's always a need for radicals to push the movement. We wouldn't have had a successful movement in the 1930s if it wasn't for radicals, right? And a lot of times we see in our movement, um, the establishment is pushing radicals out of the movement. Hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot, a lot more we could get into there. Uh, I know we've got some other callers on the line, so I want to get them on the air as well. Am I still on the line? Yeah. You are still on the line. I'm. I didn't. Okay, I didn't great. cut you off in case you. Yeah, you wanted to have a response. Yeah, just just one last comment. Then I want to let some others speak. But um, going back to the fact that a lot of people have been taken in by Trump, I think that's a failure on us. It's also, I think, an indication that um, people more and more are not really buying the line that Democrats are pro labor or that Democrats mm. are better and that like increasingly this idea that we just need to vote for the less evil candidate is not really holding sway over people. And so to some degree, I, I think Sean Fain and Sean O'Brien are kind of tailing that a little bit. Like they're, they're, they're playing this like game because they know they can, because they know that there is that mass discontent. And I do think that they could go further and people would rise up in support. But if you don't really try to like push the envelope, then you're not going to see you're not going to be able to figure out like what forces are are going to stand up behind the line that you're putting forward. So that, those are my thoughts. Um, I also want to uh, mention, I, I think I forgot to mention at the beginning of my call that I um, am also a member of Teamsters Mobilize. Really glad to be working with the folks in that group and encourage other Teamsters to reach out if they want to get involved. Thanks for the call, Kat. Appreciate yeah, really appreciate it. it. Yeah, Stay you. involved. Keep pushing. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's how we're going to make a difference is we need people everywhere organizing inside our unions, inside all of these institutions, just in the community. You know, we've got to be pushing for for positive change because, you know, the status quo just ain't working. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's mm -hmm. where I, I enjoyed the conversation with Rick Smith. But, you know, there again, I get the same kind of whiplash that I got at the AFL Con, uh, conference a couple weeks ago it's like all this but then we're just going to defend joe biden um and I, so i don't want to go down that road any further but um i just do think that there's a lot we can do um to build independent political power and to organize working people and and i agree with kat that the lesser evil you know that is resonating less and less with people i objectively do think that you know biden is the lesser evil uh if for no other reason than the national labor relations board we have a fighting chance with them now which we didn't in you know 
before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that alone, if I were in Florida or Georgia, I would vote for Biden for that reason. I'd hold my nose and do that. Uh, I live in Alabama. I'm not going to vote for him because um, I can't I can't co-sign genocide uh, and neoliberal yeah. imperialism. I just I can't mm-hmm. co-sign that uh, just for just to do it. Right. And because in Alabama, my vote would be just to do it. It would not count. It would not make an impact on the election. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from with that. There needs to be a recognition inside the labor movement that we have left wing people. Just yes, we have people who are falling for Trump and we've got to deal with that. We have an entire left. Right. Who is unhappy with Joe Biden for a lot of other reasons, not because of what we heard on Fox. Right. But but because we have our own analysis and we see where the Biden administration is falling short for working people and could be better. And we need our unions to be forcing more pressure on them and not just be seen as like an auxiliary of them. Um, Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'll let the next caller get on the line. (laughs) Sorry. Appreciate the call, Kat. Uh, We got a caller from a three one seven area code three one seven area code. What is your name and where are you calling from? Uh, hey, y'all, this is Will uh, calling from Texas. I'm a teamster down here in Texas. Uh, I want to I first address, uh, there's a lot of talk um, uh, in a lot of the, a lot of my brothers um, across the country um, are currently, brothers and sisters are currently pulling uh, out of drive. Um, and I think it's entirely um, warranted and fair that they are pulling out a drive. I just want to urge people, if you're going to pull out a drive, I'm going to say I, I understand where you're coming from, but please don't let that money go to waste. Uh, mm. Donate to other labor causes. Donate to labor notes. Um, throw you guys some money. Um, you know, donate some money to, you know, um, Teamsters Mobilize. Um you know, there, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of great places where you can take that drive money and put it to work, uh, in, in other places. Um, next thing I'd like to say is, you know, uh, I, I know that we don't, that you don't want to go down the, the, the rabbit hole about Biden, but I'm sorry, I got to take you down it. Um, That's down, fine, here brother. Texas, <laughs> down here in Texas, we got a lot of brothers and sisters that support Trump, and it's because they can tell that the Democrats are charlatans. Okay, it, it's just it's just obvious, you know. Now, <laughs> they should also be able to tell that the 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 fake populism of the Republicans, um, you know, is is a thing too. But you know, that's you know, that, I guess that's that's a that's a different conversation. But you know, the Democrats. They're they're seen as you know fakers. Um, they they talk working class uh, politics, but they they don't they don't do anything. You know, you, Joe Biden wears a UAW hat on a picket line, but you know it crushes the rail strike, and and that just doesn't pass the smell test. We're not stupid. Um, and you know, I, I think as far as Sean O'Brien goes. If you want to talk about pragmatism, now I'm somebody who supports what you guys are talking about, independent, you know, militant, union, working class power, right, a labor party, a genuine labor party that, that can take on the, the Democrats and the Republicans. But if you want to talk pragmatism and you want to talk in the meantime, 
our unions should not be talking to anybody who doesn't support the PRO Act, who doesn't support overturning right to work, who doesn't support overturning Taft-Hartley. If you don't support those things, don't come to us for money. Don't come to us for volunteers. I don't, I don't want to hear it, and, and, and I don't want to hear the AFL-CIO or my union or anybody pushing lackluster Democrats that, that just give us lip service and then get in there and do nothing for us. I mean, you need to come with the fire if you want us to support you, and and that should be that should be the standard, right there. That should be the standard. Um, that's uh that's what I called in to uh to to say. Yeah, brother, yeah. I really appreciate I that, and I totally agree. I think we have to <clears throat> hire have higher standards. Just not being Trump, just not being Republican, should not warrant you millions of dollars in donations. I'm sorry. Right. There's a lot. And like you said, you know, in terms of the PAC contributions, I used to tell, uh, you know, the educators that I organized and represented all the time, like, you don't have to contribute to this PAC because guess what? I don't because I, I didn't I did not want my money going towards neoliberal Democrats and reactionary Republicans. And, you know, that's who was going to get the support. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot of other areas in which I think. We could see investment that would pay off in terms of dealing with these problems from a longer view. We mentioned it with Rick. There's so much propaganda is pumped out from the liberal press and then from the right wing press. So much propaganda that is not in our best interest. And, you know, that's where, yeah, I want to see our unions have higher standards to get to offer support, offer endorsements and say, you know what, maybe this maybe this cycle we take a lot of that money that we would just piss away on donations, and we invest that in new yeah. organizing. We invest that in labor media, right, and, and getting our message out. Why don't we run our own ads about the PRO Act in right. every, every swing state in the country, right? I mean there's just a lot more that could be done than just the same old, same old status quo because we've been doing that, Yeah, and it ain't working. So, yeah, I appreciate the call, brother. Thanks for the call, Hey, Will. one last uh, oh, oops. Sorry. I did not mean to do that, Will. My bad. Uh, send us a send us a message. Yeah, uh, definitely on, do. On YouTube. Send us something in the YouTube chat. Uh, yeah, definitely. 530 area code is uh, the next in the queue. 530, uh, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Yo, my name is uh, Barry Anderson out of Northern California. How you guys doing this morning? Good, Barry good. From California. Appreciate you. Doing good. What's on your mind? Yeah, man. Uh, I'm a fellow Teamster, and um, I just think overall, rather you be Teamsters, UAW, ILW, and the various other unions across the country, it's about that time to break away from these two parties and to really mobilize and to organize a labor, an independent labor party strictly for labor. When I say strictly for labor, I mean union labor and non-union labor. Um, these uh, labor leaders for some reason they think that their actual local or just their one organization is going to be able to battle the two powers the two uh the two power dictatorship or the two-party dictatorship and they think they're going to come in there and try to reason to fight them some type of way it's going to take more more than that the labor movement has to be has to be gathered together union labor non-union labor and to establish a force and a movement and a power that would definitely demand and demand respect um, right now, we understand that 2024 is a new year. The election is going to be later on this, this year, November. 
And a lot of people, they're not quite sure which direction they're going to go. Um, it looks like Donald Trump is, is a little bit more appealing to most people who will be next to get in office. To be honest with you, my, my comrades, it's about time for us to leave these two parties alone and to organize and to mobilize and to get ready for a new labor faction. Because what we've been getting is not enough. It's not doing us a damn thing. Appreciate the call. Yes, sir. Thanks, Appreciate you. Uh, we got uh, one more caller, 714 area code. Uh, I believe I know who this is. Uh, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Buenas tardes to comrade Jacob Adams of San Francisco Negrete from Teamster Local 952 over here in the, the happiest place on earth called Anaheim, California, and also a proud member of uh, Teamster Mobilize. Let me uh, start off with the Southern California Valley Labor Report. The California uh, Faculty Association and Teamsters Local 2010 uh, got a tentative agreement with the largest public university system in the United States, which is the California State University. So congrats to them. Absolutely. And, mm -hmm. the, task, and the task on hand now, as the teams I heard, Rick Smith, come on. And he talked about don't criticize Sean O'Brien, but we must. If as a steward, if my actions are not up to par to whoever administration is, they could remove a steward, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you speak out against the administration, there's accountabilities for your actions, you know? So uh, Sean O'Brien does need to be held accountable, in my opinion. You know, and I, the the brother and uh, Adam talked about breaking away from this uh, political duopoly that that we're under. I mean, it's it's, it's just the facts, and I don't even, I don't know if you gentlemen touched on the racial discrimination lawsuit that happened. Uh, <laughs> no, that we was, didn't. That, that Adam, was... did you see that? <laughs> I just heard. Uh, some chatter about it, but I'm not aware of, of anything going on with it. So, so yeah, it'd be news to me. When the when the general president took office in March of 20, uh, 2020, I believe, I could be wrong on the date. No, 2022. Excuse me, 2022. Uh, he let go of a lot of uh, a lot of uh, people in the organizing department. He let go. I think it was. 77% of the uh, the staff there, you know, and most of them were black. And I don't like to use the term, but Latino or, you know, uh, Latino, uh, African Latino, you know, well, I forget the terminology, but he let go of 77% uh, of that staff. And they turned around and sued for racial discrimination. You know, I, our, uh, TDU just published an article right now talking about how that overall O'Brien uh, let go, I think, 130-something of staff from the IBT, you know, and they were saying how Hoffa did that once Hoffa took power after Kerry. But 77% out of one department, the organizing department, which is crucial, I mean, excuse me, which is crucial because you have to go around all these companies, all these corporations, and, you know, organize. Other than sports, work brings to brings the masses together. Difference 
parts of the uh, of uh, the socioeconomic sphere, uh, different uh, religious backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds. You know, it's 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 one of the great uh, denominators that we have is the uh, the workplace. And if I'm seeing people that are not reflective of of me, I mean, come on now. Leadership must reflect the diversity of its workforce. I totally agree, Jose. And I think that, um, you know, it is not the the thing that was egregious to me. And and I'm going to ask you a question and I want your thoughts on this. But, you know, the thing that was egregious to me was not necessarily that he fired a bunch of folks. Um, You know, that's it. But. The majority of those folks that he fired were, you know, um, uh, black and, and other minorities. And then the majority of the people that he replaced them with was white. It was like 70, 80 percent white. And, yeah. uh, you, you know, that seems like that's not really defendable. You can't you, you can't defend that choice. But I I do want I, I do just want to be uh at least the first thing that I thought was um, something like this came around early on in Sean Fain's administration as well. There were some allegations, you know, Sean Fain got rid of a bunch of of uh, people that had been around the UAW for a long time. And there were what I found to be cynical accusations of racial discrimination and all this stuff. And, and you know, it's, it, it's like seems to me like obvious that you know you've got this a whole bunch of staff around that are aligned or have been aligned for decades with you know and admit with the administration caucus and so of course like they're not going to be a good fit right and and so i found those to be cynical and i I think that's kind of generally proven to be true but is there any of that there or do you think that this is this is not a cynical deployment of of you know this issue and and that you know it there, there really is something there to this. Uh, the Teamsters National Black Caucus issued a letter, you know, talking about the meeting with Trump and what Trump represents. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure if they if they would have written that letter after the the lawsuit came out, you know, the the, the whole filings and, and stuff, that they probably would have taken a. a a hard stand on this, you know. Mm. I know there was a a person that uh, that was under the previous administration that was trying that he his he was hired to make the IBT staff more diverse. That was I think that was his uh, his uh, his job there, and mm. he got axed as well, I believe too. I think mm. he did. I don't I don't think he was in the lawsuit, but he he got he got waxed as well. So I mean, there's there's frustrations, especially with the Teamsters when you, we see this. You know, we're we're supposed to believe that we're 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 moving on the on the right direction. We're take we're we're being progressive when it comes to the 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 staff being reflective of the rank and file. But when when you, when you have a department that's very crucial, which is the, the organizing department. It's, I mean, it's it, it's kind of disgusting when you know you you fired seventy seven percent of uh, of people of color from from that department. You know, so right now it's it's uh, 
the Teamsters will prevail. You know, you know, you you have uh, militant rank and file that are taking action. There was brothers in uh, and sisters in Maryland that were forced on their sixth day. They 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 pushed and they pushed and they pushed. I think another one as well. I forget the name of that local. You know that they're fighting. You know, and then we're, we're then Rick Smith talked about the, his, the so-called air quotes historic contract at UPS. Now we're seeing these day sorts are being eliminated. There's one in Baltimore that got eliminated. Uh, uh, another one in uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, Swan Island. Their day sorts getting eliminated as well. You know, and you see UPS out here in Southern California. They bought a. Uh, they they're going to open up a new automated hub, and these automated hubs sometimes don't come with uh, sorters. You know, so you, like in my building, you have a sort aisle which has between 20 to 30 people. Now, if you these automated hubs that they don't have a sort aisle, then those are 20. You know, those are less jobs for us, and our numbers will will decrease. You know, right. so right now it's uh. It's time to ask the hard questions if if you're a team sir. You know, it's just it's it's the time to be analytical, be critical, hold your leadership accountable. You know, why are we giving forty five thousand to the NRC? What do we want to we want we want to participate in Project Twenty Twenty? I don't know if anybody has read the uh, mandate for leadership, a, a conservative promise. But in page five hundred eighty one, where it talks about labor, that's the playbook. Either yep. if it's Nikki Haley or Donald Trump, they're going to implement that. They are, and we're, we're and we're going to take a lot of setbacks. So, uh, I'll leave you with that. Solidarity, all workers, uh, all power to the workers. And if any Teamster is outraged by any of the actions, the Teamster Mobile has a petition when uh, for the uh, meeting with Trump. We also have a petition when it comes to Palestine. I'm glad Sean O'Brien talked about a ceasefire, but he only talked about a ceasefire when he came to the senator of uh, Oklahoma. Uh, I can't think of his name when Sean O'Brien was on uh, Neil Cavuco's show, that Fox Business show. You know, he talked about a ceasefire, and I was like, wow, he talked about a ceasefire, but where's a ceasefire when, interna- when Palestinian trade unions are asking for international solidarity? You know, it's not that hard to call for a ceasefire. It's a humane and right thing to do. It's a dignified thing to do. It's a moral thing to do in this time exactly. where 25,000 Palestinians are, are, are dead, you know, and get those hostages back, you know? Yeah. So we need to make a stand. And, we're, and the SEIU took a stand. UAW took a stand. I saw the uh, Teachers Association took a stand. Mm-hmm. We, yeah. need to, we need to take a stand. But I'm yeah, glad I, Mr. Mobilize is taking a stand on it. I, I, I agree. Did you say that Sean O'Brien... Mm, talked about a ceasefire positively on Fox News? Yes, there's Neil Cavuco, uh, uh, I think his name, I can't pronounce his name, but he's like, I'm glad I brought us, I think he said, I'm glad I brought a ceasefire between you and uh, and uh, the senator from uh, Oklahoma. Oh, you know? oh, okay. I remember that. But he, okay. he, 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 he agreed to it. I was like, okay, now let's, you know. Right. Interesting, okay. interesting South, words. Right. Yeah. Okay. I thought, yeah, yeah I, I thought, to... I thought I had missed that Sean O'Brien said something about a ceasefire in Gaza on Fox News. I was no, like, he, okay, how the hell did I miss that, Jose? What's going he on? He did not. He, he, did, he did not. He he agreed to a ceasefire, but when it came, but it came with yeah. him and uh, the senator from Oklahoma's little back and forth USD, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, debacle. You know. Okay. Appreciate it, Jose. Thanks for the call.
You guys have a great weekend. All power to the workers. Yeah, you Thanks, too. Uh, some good uh, uh, comments to this. Uh, Will said that Sean O'Brien came to the local 396 uh, last Sunday to speak to our uh, general membership meeting. I spoke with him, and he told me that there would be no endorsement of Trump. So we'll see about that. And he also talked about a ceasefire resolution. So, or Will talked to Sean O'Brien about a ceasefire resolution. So uh, we'll see if anything good comes of that. On the discrimination stuff, Selena Goodwin uh, has some good information, and I'll I will I I will have to read the report. I and that's why that's why I didn't have it slated to talk about. But you know, while he was on and he brought it up, I just I wanted to get his thoughts on it. But Selena says, uh, read the report because it makes clear that the union staffers they fired had no documentations of the claims that uh, Sean O'Brien administration made that they were not doing their jobs. In fact, the only documentation that they had about the workers' po- uh, performance was positive. So, so there you go. Um, you know, as someone who worked for a union and was fired by that union, I, I will say that, you know, you can't expect unions to always be exemplary employers, yeah. unfortunately. And you, they should, but, right. um, I, you know, I don't know the facts of this case, uh, obviously. So I can't like indict anyone and don't want to. But what you shared earlier about the numbers, you know, that's very concerning because, you know, the, the organizers should reflect Absolutely. the workers you're trying to organize, right? Um, yeah. And should be as diverse as the workers <clears throat> that you're trying to organize. And that's very important, not just on principle, but... For, for effectiveness. For effectiveness. Like Jose said. Yes, exactly. Just for effectiveness, right. Even And, and so even in the, in the 30s, you had, you know, the steel workers were hiring yeah. uh, black organizers, even though there Mine were some workers. racists yep. inside the steel workers leadership. Right. You know, but they recognize that. So, right. um, yeah, no, exactly. Um, we can go ahead and turn the phones off. I do want to get to this stuff with Charlie Kirk. Are you good for, for do this last segment? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to get to be this. real hungry when, by the time we finish this I'm show. Be super <laughs> hungry, but I want to get to Appreciate this. Appreciate all the uh, feedback today. Yeah. Also, Strom, uh, see that about Reed Kane. I'll definitely uh, check into send Reed us Kane. A, send us a link to him because I'm searching for. I've I've Googled him a couple of times, and I'm not seeing anything. Um, uh, I'm not seeing anything come up that's obviously this person. There's a couple of different people that I'm not sure about yeah if you've got something send us a link yeah for sure um so here's what uh we'll do this segment then we'll go ahead and head out i'm gonna close the calls so um and and it's a good segue because we were just talking about we were just talking about the importance of diversity in the labor movement uh not even just for diversity's sake because like uh, you know, feely, it's good to have diverse people or whatever, but because it is, you know, it's beneficial to the mission of the union, it helps us organize when our organizers and when our leaders are reflective of the people uh, that we are a part of, right? It's And it's obvious. And so, uh, and this is true in a lot of different areas. It is just, it is more beneficial where you, when you have people doing, um, doing a job that are coming from multiple perspective, perspectives and multiple walks of life, uh, you know, th- there is a literal strength in diversity. And so that is, and now that is not to say that all of the corporate, DEI programs are done in good faith or anything like that. 
Uh, we have, in fact, been critical of DEI programs and, and in some instances and in some of the implementations. And you can go back and, and watch that, particularly our interview with Paul Prescott about it. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, not a wholesale endorsement of DEI, right? If it's coming from management, you got to be skeptical, okay? But just that's just a good right. rule in life. Good if it comes from management, be skeptical. Right. But you shouldn't be skeptical because. Uh, it involves black people. <laughs> and uh, that was the perspective being pushed by Charlie Kirk on his program. Let's play this clip from the Charlie Kirk show. All right. Let me get this queued up here. About the pilots? Yes. Okay. We've all been in the back of a plane when the turbulence hits or when you're flying through a storm and you're like, I'm so glad I saw the guy with the right okay, stuff and the square it. jaw get into the cockpit before we took off. And on. I feel better I'm now. Thank you. No, I mean, about like, that. you want to go thought crime? Like, I'm. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have never thought that. I have never once been <laughs> in a plane, and I've flown a lot over the past two or three years for work. I've never once hit turbulence and been like, oh my God, I'm glad my pilot has a dick. Like, that's just not even occurred to me to have that. Like, what a bizarre thing to admit to. Yeah, a uh, square jaw. And a square jaw. I mean, that's it's just wild. It is very bizarre. Saying this stuff out loud. I mean, presumably he doesn't actually think these things when he's on a plane, right? And he's just saying this, but still. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? Like, Either way, just it's be bizarre. like dyed-in-the-wool racist. I don't know. Well, I think that they are. As we'll hear more from them about that. Pit before we took off, and I feel better now. Thank you. No, I mean, about like, that. you want to go thought crime? Like, I'm sorry. If I see a black pilot, I'm going to be like, boy, I hope he's qualified. Well, that's the you wouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have. You wouldn't have done that before. That's not an immediate. No, you wouldn't have done that before. That's not who I am. That's not what I believe. It is the reality. The left. We've all been. Go. It's the reality. The left has created. Um, yeah, no, the left is not responsible for you being freaked out by black pilots. I'm sorry, Charlie Kirk and whoever that was. It's the, okay, maybe I'm being racist, but you made me. <laughs> you made me racist. You made me do you this. You made me racist. Yeah, it's just so bizarre. And they're doing all of this because, you know, they have this DEI program and they're trying to get their pilots to 50% um, women and people of color. And now if you actually know anything about demographics, Having 50% women and people of color is uh, virtually meaningless because that's very easy to do. And to illustrate that, if you look at the Trump coalition, the people who voted for Trump in 2020 and 2016, the majority were women and people of color. <laughs> okay. Technically. Like, it's not, like, that's not, that's not hard to do, right? There's just so many, like, uh, Half of the population is women, right? Just half of the people that you have to pull from are women. So right there, you've got a huge pool of people, and then a good, uh, like, 40% of people are minorities, right? So, uh, the, so the only remaining people who are not women and people of color, it, it's like 25% of the American population are not women and people of color, right? So... Uh, it's not hard to get to 50% women and people of color. But so because of that, because they're saying, you know, oh, we want to get to 50% women and people of color. Um, they're saying that uh, that that means they're going to have to, like, 
cut standards and pilots are going to be bad because the only way that you could get enough black pilots in is to lower the standards. And that's just obviously not the case uh, because there are a lot of structural reasons that, um, you know, white men are more often to are, are more likely to be pilots and they actually talk about it some of it on the show which is it, just bonkers some of it is just the fact that it's other white dudes that are hiring the pilots yes right? other it, white dudes that are hiring hiring the pilots but one of the things that they actually even mentioned is that flying is an upper middle class hobby like who when they're 14 years old or whatever learns to fly Rich people, right? And so there's a, that's, there's a reason that it's a bunch of, like, white folks, white men, because they are more likely to have access to the resources to get that. There's not anything intrinsic in the genetics of white men that make us better flyers. It is just the circumstances of the society that we live in. And so we can change those circumstances by investing resources to make it easier for you know minorities and women to access the things that they need to learn how to fly like that's all it takes that's all it takes is just a reallocation of resources and an investment in these communities yeah it's... and they're and never in these announcements about dei are they saying they're changing their standards they're just saying that they're investing in getting to this percentage to make uh to to make their workforce more representative of the population of the American people and to give people that have not had a chance to get into this high paying profession a chance to get into it it's wild but they so they, they it's funny they actually, they did talk about some of those things well from now but, on when i get on a plane and it's a white dude i'm just going to assume the good old boy network put him right. there and i'm going to be very scared that he's going to yeah. crash the plane right with that kind of logic i um, mean it's bonkers but uh you know it, it's these funny people are they millionaires were, they literally right. make millions of dollars to say this kind of bullshit on tv and radio and youtube it's wild and so here's what but uh, somebody mentioned that, and then another person had uh, another reason, that, a different reason maybe, that um, that pilots were, were mostly white men. Well, the reason that pilots are all male is to become a pilot is hard. <laughs> so. Jesus. <laughs> oh, my <Wow>. God. <laughs> so, women don't do hard things? Right. No, it's just super easy to be a woman. Like, there's no issues there at all. Not difficult at all. Jesus, this sucker. <laughs> and the reason that, and so that they were actually reacting to a DEI video from like, I don't know, United or American or something. I can't remember which one from like two or three years ago. And so then maybe you're thinking, wait a second, why are they reacting to a video that's two or three years old? What's the deal with that? And the reason is because airlines have been in the news recently for, um, you know, for screwing up and and so because of that there's been this effort to obfuscate the reasons for that particularly it, it really kicked off with this boeing um uh when when boeing's uh uh plug door fell out i think y'all all saw that video where you know people were in the plane and and like this the door just flew off right um and so there's a really concerted campaign. And I honestly, with how much work it is doing for these corporations, I I don't doubt that one day we see papers documenting 
the funding of these talking points from people like Boeing or, or something like that because it is it's just too it is too beneficial for these corporations that these are the talking points um, when there are issues with airlines and now all of a sudden we're talking about the issues with airlines is that there's too many black people or there's too many women right that's just too convenient for them because if you actually look at why that happened it's corporate greed it's disinvestment it's outsourcing it's subcontracting jacobin had a really good article about it uh the article is titled workers at a boeing supplier raised issues about defects the company didn't listen from the article less than a month before a catastrophic aircraft failure prompted the grounding of more than 150 of boeing's commercial aircraft documents were filed in federal court alleging that former employees at the company's subcontractor repeatedly warned corporate officials about safety problems and were told to falsify records aviation experts say that the allegations against spirit which is the producer of, of the fuse of, of the the bodies of the airplanes say allegations against spirit are emblematic of how brand name manufacturers practice of outsourcing aerospace construction has led to worrisome safety issues the court documents allege that on february 22nd 2022 one spirit inspection worker explicitly told company management that he was being instructed to misrepresent the number of defects he was working on you're asking us to record in an inaccurate way, the number of defects, he wrote in an email to a company official. This makes us and put us in a very uncomfortable situation. We are being purposely asked to purposely record inaccurate information. He then sent an email to Spirit's CEO as a last resort. Uh, da da da. When the employee first expressed concerns to his supervisor about the mandate, the supervisor responded that. Quote, if he refused to do as he was told, the supervisor would fire him on the spot. After the worker sent the email about the faulty reporting, he was allegedly demoted from his position by management, and the rest of the inspection team was told to continue using the new system of logging defects. Ultimately, the worker's complaint was sustained and he was restored to his prior position with back pay, but he quit several months later and claimed that other inspection team members that he had worked with had been moved to new positions when, according to management, they documented too many defects. This specific defect, the plug door, the issues that, that had it fly out, that specific defect was discovered by Spirit months before they became public. The court documents claim that a former quality auditor with Spirit, Joshua Dean, identified the manufacturing defects, bulkhead holes that were improperly drilled, in October 2022, nearly a year before Boeing said that the defect had been discovered. Dean identified the issue and sent his findings to his supervisors on multiple occasions, telling management at one point that it was, quote, the worst finding he had encountered during his time as an auditor. However, Spirit concealed the defect, and in April 2023, Spirit fired him. Okay? It's not because there are too many black pilots, it's because these companies are greedy and want to do everything as cheaply and shoddily as possible. 
Dean also claimed to have noticed a significant deterioration in Spirit's workforce after Spirit went through several rounds of mass layoffs in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, despite the huge influx in government funding that they received. According to court documents, Spirit laid off or voluntarily retired a large number of senior engineers and mechanics, leaving a disproportionate number of new and less experienced personnel. So this is all easily explainable, right? Super easily explainable. Another thing that they were talking about later in the in in, in that uh, clip was they mentioned that the the New York Times had covered the increasing instances of near misses of airplanes at airports, like airplanes almost hitting each other. Right, the number of near misses is increasing, and so again. They say that, oh, you know, the New York Times, they're just worried about, you know, this DEI stuff getting out of hand and, and killing somebody. That's why they're finally reporting on it. They're finally uncovering the news that DEI is resulting in a bunch of near misses. And so, you know, you won't be surprised to learn that's not actually what the reporting found. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you can believe it, <clears throat> that's not what... The reporting found the reporting found uh, many insiders describing the situation as a safety net under mounting stress. So far this year, close calls involving commercial airlines have been happening on average multiple times a week, according to a Times analysis of internal FAA records, as well as thousands of pages of federal safety reports and interviews with more than 50 current and former pilots, air traffic controllers and federal officials. One problem is that despite repeated recommendations from safety authorities, the vast majority of U.S. airports have not installed warning systems to help prevent collisions on runways. Disinvestment. Lack of funding. But the most acute challenge, the Times found, is that the nation's air traffic control facilities are chronically understaffed. While the uh, lack of controllers is no secret, the shortages are more severe and are leading to more dangerous situations than previously known. As of May, only three of 313 air traffic facilities nationwide had enough controllers to meet targets set by the FAA and the union representing controllers. Many controllers are required to work six days a week and a schedule that is so fatiguing that multiple federal agencies have warned that it could impede controllers' ability to do their jobs properly. <clears throat> The uh, schedule that they have to work is called the Rattler, and the schedule is uh, they have a starting the starting time for their shift rotates over the course of the week. So on the first day, a controller might work an afternoon shift. From there, the shifts start progressively earlier, culminating in a 24-hour period in which the controller works both an early morning shift and as few as eight hours later, overnight duty. Many controllers call the schedule the rattler because, like the snake, it has a nasty bite. Um, and so, you know, like uh, under those conditions, yeah, it's super actually predictable <laughs> that that you're going to get more near misses. Um, the uh, uh, there was one back-to-back -back planes nearly smashed into the Frontier jet whose nose was edging onto the San Francisco runway in July. And one of the underlying problems was the shortage of air traffic controllers. The FAA's internal report into the incident found that Frontier, the Frontier pilot made a mistake, but the controller monitoring the runway didn't do enough to mitigate the pilot's error. Staffing during the incident was, quote, not normal for the time of day and volume of traffic. The controller, who was supposed to be supervising colleagues, was busy marshalling planes under staffing. 
The staffing there was 33% below the target set by a group of officials from the FAA and the Controllers Union. Uh, the Times found that the roots of the current staffing shortage dates back to uh, as early as the 1980s, if you can believe it, when Ronald Reagan <laughs> fired thousands of air traffic controllers. Since then, there have been waves of departures as controllers become eligible for retirement, and the FAA has struggled to keep pace. And then, during the pandemic, many controllers left, and the FAA slowed the pace of training new ones because of health restrictions. The staffing shortage became a crisis. In the past decade, the number of fully trained controllers has fallen by 10%, while airport traffic has increased by 5%. In just the past decade, I mean, that, obviously, that is going to result in uh, worse outcomes. The FAA uh, has required many controllers to work six days a week. Halfway through 2023, some controllers already had clocked more than 400 hours of overtime. Many controllers say that coupled with mandatory overtime, the job has pushed them to the physical and psychological brink. Some said they hadn't sought medical or mental health care because they were afraid of jeopardizing the medical clearances they needed to remain in their jobs. Instead, they self-medicated with banned sleeping pills and alcohol. I mean, there's absolutely no wonder all of this is happening, and it's there's no evidence to suggest that it's because there are too many black people. It's insane. And so... uh. When I was hearing all of this from Charlie Kirk, I immediately thought about this clip from Sean Fain at the UAW's convention a couple of weeks back, because, you know, I just went through all of the, like, the specifics of the case and, like, why conditions are deteriorating in these industries and explain why it's not D, why it's not DEI. But Sean Fain, like, in just a minute, really explains the dynamic and explains why they want you to focus on the race or the gender or the sexuality of somebody at a job instead of other things. Let's play this clip. We fight for a political program that serves humanity, not the inhumane interest of the wealthy and corporate greed. Part of that means not falling for division. It's an old trick the billionaires play, and it's effective. Time and time again, the wealthy divide the masses over single issues, and the rich walk away with all the loot. They try to divide us by gender. They act like how you live your life or your gender identity is a threat to the person on the assembly line next to you or the work site next to you. They talk about who you love who you marry, which bathroom you use, so they don't have to talk about who you work for, where the profits go, and who benefits. So there you go. I don't have anything else to say. That uh, sums it up really well. <clears throat> so with that, uh, we'll go ahead and... Um, 
wrap up the show. Appreciate everybody tuning in for this extra long program. Make sure you like the stream before you head out. Uh, like the stream, subscribe to the channel, donate, tvlr.fm slash donate. Subscribe to our newsletter, tvlr.fm. Um, buy our merch, tvlr.fm slash store. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Solidarity, y'all.